This episode contains major plot spoilers for the original Poltergeist from 1982, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side from 1986, and the brand new Poltergeist remake from 2015. horror movie podcast where we're dead serious about horror movies we have a weekly show that's released every friday and this is episode 55 on horror movie podcast you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy rent or avoid these movies and i am your host jay of the dead podcasting from salt lake city and my co-hosts tonight are Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from uh, just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Kyle Bishop, Dr. Walking Dead, coming to you live, well, not you, from my basement in Cedar City, Utah. (laughs) Welcome back, sir. It's good to have you. You know, you're kind of a mystery and an enigma. Our listeners hear about you, and we tell them we have a fourth official co-host, but here you are. So will you tell the listeners who are new to the show a little bit about yourself, Kyle, so they know where you're coming from? Sure. I'm hoping to uh, be a more regular host in the summer, so maybe they'll get a little bit more of me. Nice. But I I am a uh, university professor at Southern Utah University, where I have uh, been chairing the English department of late, where I teach classes in American literature and film studies, but I'm about to make a shift over as the director of the honors program and I will I will continue to champion the film studies minor here at SUU. Uh, I've built something of a career off of my interest in zombie films and I've uh, written a book on that called American Zombie Gothic and I am working on a follow-up book which will hopefully be out this September. Nice. I own the first one and I'll own the next one. I can't wait. That'll be awesome. Well, welcome back, sir. Um, you know, Josh, in case people are wondering, Wolfman Josh is presently on his way abroad. He's going to be spending the summer um, internationally traveling. I'll let him tell you about that more. He's going to be on the show pretty much just as often as he can find internet. But it's just that this week, as we record this, he is traveling. So he hates to miss this tonight. And we'll miss him, of course. So, let's get down to the matter at hand. What is this episode all about? Well, on June 4th, 1982, through MGM, producer Steven Spielberg and director Toby Hooper released a film called Poltergeist, which happens to be Dr. Walking Dead's number one all-time favorite horror movie. Does that still stand? That still stands. (laughs) He's, He's serious about that. And now here we are, almost exactly 33 years later, on May 22nd, 2015, they're back. And so MGM once again brought Gil Kennan in. He's the director of Monster House, which I love. And uh, he brought us this remake and what could potentially end up being a reboot of the noisy ghost, Poltergeist, from 2015. So for this very special episode here... We got the mad doctors together 
They're going to help me review these two poltergeist films in our versus format. We're going to do compare and contrast analysis and so forth. So without further delay, let's move into our feature review of Toby Hooper's or Steve, Steven Spielberg, whichever you look yeah, at it. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, that. Sure. Yeah. I figured. Um, Poltergeist from 1982. The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. And something more. All right, Poltergeist is the classic quintessential haunted house movie. It's a pretty interesting film that we're going to have to dissect a little bit because it is a Steven Spielberg movie, who is one of the writers, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a Toby Hooper-directed film or, depending on who you talk to, co-directed film. Uh, What makes Poltergeist really interesting to me is that it is PG-rated. Uh, because especially for the 80s, it was kind of tame by a lot of standards. What made Poltergeist particularly famous, or infamous, if you want to think of it that way, is that it not only concerns the haunting of a house, but the abduction of a young girl uh, who spends the majority of the film trapped between this world and the next, being menaced by some unseen and undefined uh, spectral figure. Uh, uses quite a bit of practical effects to great uh, effect, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it has a, it has a pretty great cast. The family the the family is represented by Craig T. Nelson, later to become Mister Incredible, uh, who <laughs> yes. plays Steve Freeling. Uh, his wife is the incomparable Joe Beth Williams, uh, who does a really fantastic job in this film, uh, which I interpret as a pretty feminist film. By the way, we'll get into her role as Diane later. <laughs> And then the children, uh, Dominique Dunn, who played Dana Freeling, the oldest daughter, uh, Oliver Robbins, who's about my age, which is weird. Uh, he pay- played Robbie Freeling, and Heather O'Rourke played the uh, central abductee, Carol Ann Freeling. And we'll kind of talk about their roles in the film, the plot of the film, and also, I'm sure, we will talk a little bit about the so-called poltergeist curse because three, two of those five actors I just named died in connection with the production of the sequels. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> well, the first thing I want to ask you guys, um, just real quick, obviously this is your favorite horror film, Dr. Walking Dead, but uh, where does this stand? Because I know Doc loves The Haunting, and I know a lot of us appreciate the original Amityville horror how does this stack up to those movies? Because they are pretty reputable haunted house flicks as well. Oh, they are. But for me, um, Poltergeist is in my is in my top ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I know it's not. I mean, I think it's maybe number eight or so. I can't remember. I I only seem to remember one through five pretty well. Once it gets past <laughs> that, it, it gets a little fuzzy. But it's definitely in my top ten. Uh, it's a movie that means a hell of a lot to me. 
Um, and once I, as I said before on the show, once I started seeing trailers for the reboot, remake, whatever, is when I really started to realize how much it meant to me because I just did not want to see the trailers for it. You know, I, I just, um, I was once again, you know, this movie just, it, it, it means, it means a hell of a lot to me. I saw it when it came out in the theater with, with a group of friends. I watched it all the time on cable. It was one of the first movies I ever recorded off a of cable TV <laughs> and actually owned and watched over and over again. Um, so yeah, this, this is a, this is a really important movie for me as well. Mm-hmm. Kyle. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some classic, really important haunted house films and, uh, there's a lot of similarities between this one and the Amityville horror, uh, kind of the nature of the menace to the, to the family and the fact that the family kind of makes it out. Okay. In the end, which is interesting when you think about it. Uh, but I think Amityville horror as a film really relies a little bit more on jump scares and uh, a little bit of mood. And what I love about poltergeist is it's got a story and the story to me is really amazing. And it's very much has Spielberg's fingerprints all over it. Mm, yes. Yeah. But it's operating within a, a pretty established uh, gothic tradition that goes back hundreds of years, this idea of the, the haunting. So it's a really effective film. Uh, I, I also consider it very influential as I was growing up. In a lot of ways, I think it's the first horror movie I ever saw. Uh, I did not see it in the theater. I saw it on HBO uh-huh. when, I was, when I was pretty young, uh, 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. And I was alone, and I thought, hey, I'm going to be a, be a big man and watch this horror movie by myself with all the lights turned off. <laughs> and, and it's my earliest memory of being just terrified by a film. <laughs> yes. yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so influential. Uh, as we'll get into it, it's single-handedly responsible for my fear of clowns. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's kind of started my love affair with this... Uh, endorphic adrenaline rush that we horror fans get when we expose ourselves to these kind of horrible scenarios. You bring up an interesting um, concept here that I really wanted to ask you guys about. Now we have this, there's like a nostalgia bias sometimes. And as, as I watched this film, rewatched it for this particular podcast, um, it, it starts very, you know, Spielbergian. It's, it's so, uh, it's just a lovely little, you know, pleasant little film (laughs) and and it ramps up and it does get, you know, pretty creepy later on, but still it scared me too as a child. And so I wonder if this film's power is just kind of ingrained in us somewhat because we were frightened as children by it. Well, I I think to, I guess there's always going to be a level of that, but to be honest with you, what, what still gets me, and I watched it not too long ago, um, what still really works for me is that is how much you care about the family at the center of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that yeah. is very Spielberg. You know, Spielberg was able to, to do that with, with, with families. I mean, if you look like Close Encounters, and that one was a little bit different. That was a different dynamic. But, you know, with, with, you really do get to, to care about this family and what they're going through. You know, um, and I think that's one of the film's strengths is that, is that you know, the, and and it's what I'm hoping this this remake does as well. I mean, because 
as much as the scares and the effects work in Poltergeist, they work because they're centered around this family that you, yeah. that you really want to see them get their daughter back. You want to see them win out in the end, mm-hmm. you know? Um, unlike a lot of horror movies in the 80s where people go in rooting for the killer. Right. This is one where you're rooting for the family. You want this family to come out uh, in the end of it, uh, to, to, to be all right at the end of it. Yeah, that's why the slow burn is essential. Mm-hmm. Because you get to know these people. You get to know the family. They, the, the kids in this are such genuine characters. And the acting is really pretty amazing. Because they just seem like kids. And right. uh, it, it's really pretty effortless. I do agree that there's a lot of nostalgia associated with it, especially with the uh, the rather rampant product placement that Spielberg was doing for his buddy George. Uh, so so <laughs> yes. for those of us of this age, you know, their their bedroom in the film looks like our bedrooms probably did. True. Yeah. Yep. But I, I got to say, I taught this film a year ago to a bunch of college students who were uh, born substantially later. Um, and it scared the crap out of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think part of it is I, I built it up because I'm like, well, don't worry. Cause you know, I'm in Southern Utah and I'm said, I'm not going to show you an R movie. This one's just PG. Don't worry about it. Um, and so I think their expectations were flawed. I love it. Uh, but they, they were watching it. La la la. Okay. This is a fine film. And you get to that first moment where the stair, the chairs get stacked up on the table. Yes. And they got real uncomfortable real fast. <laughs> and as the film escalated, I got I got students who were really pretty disturbed and upset. And part of that, we've already mentioned, but a lot of these effects are good old-fashioned practical effects. And this generation is so, uh, you know, kind of dulled because of CGI that you throw one of these old films on them and they don't know what to expect. And they don't know how to handle it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think it's still a pretty damn good horror film. Oh, yeah. I agree. I agree. And it is, you know, there's the the way it opens reminds me a little bit of the opening of Cujo. Do you know how it's so idyllic? And he's running around (laughs) chasing the rabbit or whatever butterflies in the field. And and this opens and it it plays that lovely music and it has that little community. And, you know, it's just really happy. And um, I thought you'd appreciate this, Kyle. I was reading uh, in the L.A. Herald Examiner, uh, Peter Rainier. He, he, he wrote, um, buried within the plot of Poltergeist is a basic, splendid fairy tale scheme. A story yeah. of a little girl who puts her parents through the most outrageous tribulation to prove their love for her. <laughs> Underlying most fairy tales is a common theme, the comforts of family. Virtually all fairy tales begin with a disrupting of the family order, and their conclusion is usually a return to order. So, yeah, that, yeah I mean, true. it makes me think that, like, with... And especially since, as you mentioned, um, the target in this is a child. Now, what do you make of, and I don't want to, I mean, probably, Kyle, you had an idea about where you wanted to start, so maybe I'll hold, hold back and let you ease us in. What, where did you want to go from here? Well, I just want to lay down the groundwork of the, the, the big question of authorship on this, because I think we need to do that before we get into it. Okay, let's do it. Because uh, you know, a lot of the listeners probably don't know the 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 difficulties that went into the production of this film is Spielberg really wanted to make this film. And he also really wanted to make a movie called E.T. 
And he wanted to make them at the same time, and he couldn't. They, the, the Directors Guild uh, had some bylaws. He wasn't supposed to be directing two films at the same time. Uh, so he brings Toby Hooper in, uh, who's you know established career as a horror film producer and director. And Toby starts making the movie. Well, according to a lot of eyewitness accounts and a lot of interviews, Spielberg was constantly on set. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, Toby was setting up the shots, but Spielberg was looking through the camera. And a lot of the direction was coming from Spielberg. And if you know Spielberg and Hooper well enough, you watch this film and you can say, oh, this is Spielberg's scene. Oh, Hooper was working this day. Yeah. Uh, so there is a little <laughs> bit of that give and take. True. But in a weird way, E.T. informs this film. Uh, they both are kind of centered on this suburban neighborhood with this family that, that is disrupted from this kind of external influence. And I'm not, I don't want to get too much off onto ET, but I just think it's worth paying attention to the fact that, um, poltergeist is about someone from our world being trapped in another world. And we're trying to get that kid back. ET is about somebody who's lost in our world. And we're trying to help them get back to their world. Oh, neat. So it's a, it's a really bizarre parallel is how they're kind of similar stories told yeah. from different points of view. So Carol Ann is the E.T. of the poltergeist world. Absolutely, yeah. She's, <laughs> she doesn't belong in that world. And, and there's a menacing figure that wants to keep her there, just like the government wants to keep the alien. So that, that's curious. I don't want to overread into that, but it's just something to kind of pay attention to. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and we do have to recognize that, yeah, it, if Toby Hooper had totally had control over Poltergeist, I think the death count would have been substantially higher uh, than one, uh, one bird. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but Hooper's aesthetic is there. His fingerprints are on it, and I think that's essential. So I just wanted to throw that out there to the listeners so they can kind of know this is a complex film. I think that's one of the reasons, and I don't know this for sure, but I think that's one of the reasons we don't have a great special edition DVD and we will never get a commentary track from Hooper, uh, which right. is unfortunate. I'd love to – because his commentary track on – Chainsaw Massacre is is like a masterclass in uh, filmmaking. Oh, it's, it's excellent. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, yeah. I, I, it's been a while since I've heard it, but that was really good. Now, was he? Is that the? Is it the one where he was with uh, Gunnar Hansen? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, great. It really is. It's and, excellent. And in the fortieth so, anniversary release, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, they did an, another one as well. Oh, I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, no, I didn't hear that either. Yeah, but anyway, I, I think I think Poltergeist is going to be kind of the. Uh, the the film no director really dares claim is theirs, right? Uh, but we can still do our thing without knowing that. And it's it's it, what's interesting is is that I mean I I saw this this was eighty two this came out, so I was twelve. Um, oddly enough, I was the oldest of everybody in my group who saw it. Everybody was was <laughs> younger than me who saw this, um, but. What drew us to the movie was Steven Spielberg's name on it, because yeah. the year before Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, which is what made me fall in love with movies in the first place. So the fact that Steven Spielberg's name was on it, I was like, wow, yeah, this is one we definitely have to see without even looking too deep into what it was about. I mean, we were all petrified sitting in that theater <laughs> and it was a, it was a beautiful summer day. I mean, you know, the sun was shining 
we 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 had, we had played a, a game of baseball the the morning before we went to see this. It was just like a great day, and man, still scared the hell out of us. <laughs> um, but it was Spielberg's name on the movie that 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 drew us to it originally. That we said, "Oh, this is one we definitely have to see." How old right. were you in '82, Dave? Uh, twelve. Twelve. I okay. Was twelve. Yeah. yeah okay. And I know my brother was ten, or just turned eleven. He had just turned eleven when when we saw this, and I know we had another friend who was ten um, when we went to the to the theater to to, to see this, um, and it was a fairly. I don't think any of us fully saw the the scene in the mirror. Um, I'm sure oh, yeah. we all looked away for at least a few <laughs> seconds, and some of us probably more than that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, um, just real quick then, uh, just to back up for a second, I want to speculate. I know we don't know the official answer, but there have been lots of accounts of um, Spielberg directing. But how do you think that went down between those two? Because supposedly Spielberg appreciated and admired Toby Hooper's work, especially on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But, I mean, do you think he was like... Was it kind of this unwritten thing where they didn't really acknowledge what was happening, but Steven Spielberg was still kind of directing? Or do you think they just kind of chatted about it and he said, you do this, I'll do this? I mean, do you, mm. I mean, because it seems like Toby Hooper was kind of weird about it. He was kind of quiet about it afterward from yeah. the things I've read. So is it is it this uncomfortable weirdness kind of thing? I thought I, thought I saw a quote one time where Spielberg... Um, had said something and it was maybe from that time while the film was being made somewhere along the lines was Toby is not as hands-on as I would like. Yeah. He said he's and, not and, a take charge sort of guy is what he right. said. Right. Yeah. yeah that, and, and, and so I'm guessing that that hints at some tension between them. Yeah. Well, I just think because they Hooper has said so little about it. I think it was a, uh, not the career boost that he thought it would be. He wasn't uh, clearly. He wasn't enamored by the project enough to take charge because it was Spielberg's co-written script. But yeah, it's it's kind of hard to come in and take on somebody else's pet project, especially when they're also there. <laughs> Which is yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's so different from when Spielberg finished AI because Kubrick was dead. Yeah. Uh, but Spielberg was on set every day, and and I'm sure at some point, Hooper kind of said, "Look, I'm just this is just a job now." Yeah. Uh, so yes. I mean, he had a writing credit, of course, and, and then also he was a producer. And so, yeah. and plus, Spielberg is a strong personality, as we've yeah. come to no, learn. I, right. I, from what I know about both of them, I, I can't imagine it was a symbiotic relationship. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I get you. Well, good. Well, that paints a picture for us then. So, okay, so we, we got that. Anything we got that else out on of the that? Way. Okay. I think it's just good to know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but again, it's important because you got to recognize the story. And, and uh, Dr. Shock already pointed this out. It's family. It's really about family. Family central. And it's about kids. Spielberg loves to put kids in peril uh, because he's not stupid. He knows that that's going to up the ante. That's going to increase the terror. And it's going to increase the investment. Yes. Because when I first saw this movie, I, of course, identified with the kids. And so I'm worried, oh, man, I'm going to get eaten by that tree. Right. Uh, my stuffed animals are going to try to kill me tonight. So I was very <laughs> identifying with the children. That movie, to me now, is so much more frightening because I have children. Yes. Yes. And yeah. I'm, 
I'm in this point now, and this is why watching the the remake this weekend will be interesting, is I've got a son and a daughter, and they're currently just about the same age as as Robbie and Carol Ann were in the film. So, you know, I've kind of got this imperiled children thing, which to a parent, yeah, that's the most terrifying thing in the world. I'm not going to get all worked up over a bunch of sex-crazed teenagers in the woods because <laughs> right. uh, they, they got it coming. Right, but but you go after my kids. <laughs> that's that's where the that's where the fear is. You know, Kyle, yes. I'm having trouble imagining what type of stuffed animals you probably had when you were younger. <laughs> like what kind of animals they were. I don't know. I just a man who loves zombies like you do. It's uh, hard to say. <laughs> I had a Kermit the Frog that could be quite menacing. Oh yeah, that that's really funny you say that. I had a Miss Piggy that I was scared to death of. Wow. There you go. Yes, I really did. I I have, as a matter of fact, I still have it upstairs. A ventriloquist dummy Yo. of Emmett of Emmett Kelly, the clown. <laughs> Whoa! The, the 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 vagrant clown that I got back uh, in. Uh, <laughs> Well, I got it like a, I, I was. It was. I had it for several years. By the time Poltergeist came out, uh, let's put it that way. Dave, you win. That's the scariest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's funny. It doesn't. It that I'm not. I'm not big on clowns, and and, and I. And, but for some reason, that doesn't bother me. It scares the hell out of the rest of my family, though. I mean, <laughs> my mother was petrified of of it. Um, and when I found it a few years ago, I actually went over to her house. I got this big refrigerator, and I. I hung it in the refrigerator. Oh god! So that when she opened up to get her get the milk, she uh, <laughs> she saw this thing staring at her, hanging in the refrigerator. <laughs> You're naughty. That, that's <laughs> okay. So, Kyle, uh, a big question I wanted to ask you because I I'm sure you have something to say about this. The fact that the TV, <laughs> okay, yeah. ends up being this. Uh, what what would you call it? Um, conduit yeah yeah Yeah, thank you that's exactly the word this conduit uh, of course this has some some sort of underlying commentary to how you know we start out with this great community it's a little family community and then the evils of the world are let in through the tv into our homes no yeah it's this early 80s it was we're starting to get nervous about technology yep I mean, we got to remember that that's, uh, that's kind of an underlying feature of the Reagan administration is this idea of the Star Wars, right? And the, we don't know where this tech's going to go. And, and the TV is becoming so prevalent that it, it's in multiple rooms and, and we don't quite know how things work. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's, I, I think proof of the zeitgeist is one year later we get Videodrome, uh, which is – a much more disturbing film in in its treatment of video technology, but there is that that sense of what's what are we letting into our house, and and what is this thing? Even though it had been around for a long time, and, so and the, uh, sorry, nineteen eighty seven too, the video dead, which is a zombie flick where the zombies come out of the TV and get you. So it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean it paves the way, but. Because the film opens up with the the RC cars being kind of dangerous, and then the problems with the remote control and fighting over the TV, and and uh-huh. this family that leaves the TV on twenty four hours a day. It's like another member of the family, but it's it's not one that can be trusted. 
I mean, there's a lot of techno fear that's kind of laced into this movie, uh, which kind of culminates in that great closing shot, the punchline of the whole film when they when they move the TV out into the outside the hotel room. I love right. that. It's perfect. <laughs> that's a perfect ending. Yeah. And and the other thing about the early '80s, you know, circa 1982, you had like things like the Benny Hill show on. Right. And, and that's, yeah. you know, that kind of filth, you know, <laughs> just, that's what my, um, you know, my aunt would call it. Oh yeah. We weren't allowed to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I technically wasn't allowed to watch it, but I would, I would watch it on occasion. <laughs> I thought I've they, seen they you on the Benny it, Hill show. showed it during the day in, uh, in Philadelphia <laughs> on, on one channel, if you can believe it. It was, it was a daytime, not, not like, I'm not talking like three in the afternoon, but like six o'clock in uh, in the after, like at night type thing. That's awesome. <laughs> they would show they would show Benny Hill, but you know one thing about that 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 gets me is that you know I remember and I get I'm guessing you guys too uh, uh, remember it as well when TVs would play the national anthem and then just switch yeah. off. Oh yeah. yeah, for several hours. I remember only being awake several times when that's happened, but when you hear the national anthem and as soon as it goes to that that static. It's like you're cut off from the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And that and that in itself is a little creepy. Mm-hmm. It's like everything out there has just stopped. And now you're in here alone with this static. And now with everything they talk about with white noise and, and, and how, you know, the, the people can reach from the other world into the white noise, which is something nobody I wasn't thinking about back when this movie was made. But you watch something like that now. Um you know, and that that's even like another layer to it that you see, you hear her talking to the static yeah. and it's, it's really unnerving. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, around this same time, I, I'm sorry to bring this up, but this is a half to him, a huge Billy Joel fan. There's an album called glass houses of his, it came out in um, 1980 uh, and, yeah. and he has a song on there called sleeping with the television on. And it nice. actually opens with that, you know, that whole national anthem and then it goes to the screen and stuff. And I'll actually probably open this episode with that sound, but um, you know, there's something about that. It seems like it was, it was in on people's minds at that time. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I like Dr. Shock's reading of it because that is kind of the, the liminal moment of the, the film. It's when it's not day, it's not night, it's not TV, it's not off. It's not on, it's not off. Uh, and that's kind of when the when the spirits can best commune or or cross over. But yeah, I had to explain it to my students last year. They had no idea what was going on. Oh, the, <laughs> the whole national anthem thing. Yeah, no, why are they? What's that? <laughs> yeah, the fact that the that station stopped for a while that they didn't just keep broadcasting twenty four hours like like they do now. They they oh, yeah. that they would stop for a while. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But there is something creepy, especially there would have been back then, about everybody's asleep, but like the TV's not. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the, and and it, it wigs the dog out, for crying out loud. Cause, right. Um, and I do love the dog in this show, by the way. Um, yeah. Again, again, a typical Spielberg thing. Spielberg loves to have a dog. Uh, and we've talked about dogs before. If the dog survives, you know you're okay. 
<laughs> but the and, bird uh, doesn't. So, but the bird doesn't. This is a serious horror film. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we'll you know, but the but the bird died of natural causes, though. That's right. <laughs> but that's important. It's a good segue uh, uh, that the the film kind of starts with a sacrifice. Um, it does start with this harbinger of death, and this this maybe that's the opening. That's the crack is performing the funeral for the bird. Um, but, but that's really, you know, things start getting weird after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what, one of my favorite aspects here, especially since it targets a child is that the entrance to the other dimension is through the children's, the bedroom closet, which yeah. when you're a kid, that's basically the second scariest place next to under your bed. You think the monster's under your bed or in your closet. So I love that that's the entrance. And then the exit, you know, which is through the living room ceiling, right. uh, that, that's kind of cool to me because that's that's an impossible place for a kid to reach. So it's almost like, you know, they don't have any chance of getting to the exit. I mean, I know the right. exit's from the other side, but I'm just <laughs> saying where they're situated, I think, is significant to mm-hmm. childhood. Yep. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Spielberg putting this film together knew what he was doing. He was going to yep. say, "I'm going to, I'm going to prey on everybody's latent child fears." So, under the bed, closet, uh, isolation from the family, um, drowning, uh, creepy old trees, storms. Because so I got to tell you, there's not a lot that scares me in real life, uh, but a good thunderstorm with some tornado action, mm-hmm. and and I'll, that's what I have nightmares about. Yeah, is, is tornadoes. I so he's, he, you know, thunder, lightning, all this stuff is laced into that film, uh, just for the kids. And then, of course, the greatest fear of the parent: uh, your kids falling into the pool. Yeah, uh, you, can't, right. you can't, you can't find your kids. So well, this film gets common everyday fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Or to to me, the greatest fear, of course, for a parent is the kid getting abducted. Right? I mean, there's that too. Oh yeah. Yeah, 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 it's all and, in there. And this is and this is before Ghostbusters, but you're still sitting there thinking, "Who are you going to call?" That's right. <laughs> you know, for 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 this problem, who who they go to the only place they possibly could, you know, a university that that that's going to have a department, I guess, that's dedicated to this. Right. Um, well, and that's but, that's where they're working it when Ghostbusters rolls out, of course. Right. This is su- this is such Ghostbusters wouldn't have existed without this movie. You get that feeling, definitely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I see that. One thing that I really love is the dynamic between the, the parents. Yeah. Uh, Steve and Diane. And I've got this whole theory that I can't prove. Uh, I think Diane is a second wife. And I think Dana is from the first marriage. And mm. I, just, I just throw that out there. And part of it is because Dominique Dunn is so much older and Joe Beth Williams is so much younger. So if you're going off the ages of the actresses, Joe Beth Williams couldn't physiologically be Dunn's mother. Well, she would have been, what, 16 when she had her? Something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's pretty tight. So, but there's yeah. the other thing is Steve Freeling's older. He's coded as Republican. Uh, pretty hardcore throughout. You know, he's reading the books he's reading and stuff yeah, like that. the Reagan book. And yeah, yeah, right, right. And Diane is very much a flower child, hippie kind of, she's the one who cracks out the marijuana. Um, and she's the new age woman. She's open to the spirits and the ideas. And there's that great moment after she's encountered the, the, the mystical force in the kitchen 
where she says to Steve, I want you to remember back to when you had an open mind. <laughs> which, which is such a great way to lay out the dynamic. Steve is going to approach this whole thing clinically, rationally, scientifically, which is ultimately why Steve fails. Mm-hmm. Diane yep. sees the world for what it really is. She's got the maternal energy, but she also has this open mind, and she's going to say, hey, this is cool. So when, when the spirits or whatever it is whisk Carol Ann across the linoleum, Diane does jumping jacks with joy because she thinks it's so awesome. Steve goes catatonic. Right. And, yeah. and that dynamic determines pretty much the whole rest of the course of the film. Uh, and we'll get into this a little bit more in a minute, of course. But, but what a lot of people forget about this movie is that Steve does not save the family. Yeah. Good Steve point. is impotent. Diane saves her kids by herself. Right. And, and, and I think that that makes this such a great feminist film because it's really a film about the power of, of motherhood and the failure of, of fatherhood, which is couched, of course, in the failure of corporate America. So, Kyle, just, just to make sure I understand then, I want to go further on that. So what were they trying to say exactly about fatherhood? What Were the early 80s a time when, like, fathers were, um, where they were worried that fathers were failing or that they were leaving the home or what was happening? Uh, I think it'd be the opposite, really. The idea that the, I think this is an empowerment back to some traditional family roles. Mm-hmm. Showing showing Diane as a stay at home mother uh, mm-hmm. when a lot of mothers weren't the idea that uh, the breadwinner isn't necessarily going to be the the best provider for what the kids need. So I read it as a, an, as an extremely conservative film, uh, which makes sense, right? Coming out in eighty two mm-hmm. when the whole co- when the whole country was swinging back towards Reagan's conservatism and family values and and things like that. But the, so, okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry to interrupt you. I, but the fact that the father is impotent, as you've said, like, what exactly do you think they're they're getting at with that that aspect? Just, I think it's 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 uh, raising questions about the patriarchy. Okay. And nice. like I I, I kind of hinted towards it, but it's because it's the corporation that betrays them. Yeah. And right. we see so many films after this one where the corporation is the evil entity. The, the company's the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of times the, the masculine figure, the father figure, the patriarch, they're the ones coded as being the problem. And so it is this kind of nice return to uh, – uh, I'm just making this up on the spot, but I, I think this is I interesting. It. I love it. Yeah. Is is Diane the final girl from the seventies <laughs> now grown up with her own kids? Oh, oh nice. Interesting. Yeah. Is is that the is this the logical progression of the of of the final girl from Halloween and, and from those films that now she's still gonna be the final girl, but in addition to saving herself, she's gonna save her children. Wow. Save the whole family, really. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well, the dad just stands there and watches, essentially. He almost, and he almost messes it up at one point. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and in a way, he's complicit in the what's going on. Right. Oh, I think I got a paper here, guys. 
Oh yeah, I think you <laughs> do you too. Go. I love it. <laughs> it's almost like a, all the women in this in this movie. Um, you know the 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 spirits themselves are centering on the little girl as opposed right. to the little boy. The right. um the, the the when they come in the woman um Beatrice Strait she's in charge of the whole operation, and yeah. everybody's shaken by it, but yet she still pro- is able to provide strength to Joe Beth Williams' character. Yeah. You know, you got the oh I can't remember Zelda Rubenstein coming Rubenstein. in, yeah. who who can who can who can talk with the house and 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 or talk with the spirits and senses what's going on and has that great scene that I always love where where why is this room locked? She's upstairs and. And Stephen's just sitting yeah. there. He's not saying anything. And she's like, why, why aren't you answering? And she's like, I am addressing the living. He goes, oh, sorry. That's the kid's room or whatever. And he's like, I was trying to think my answer, you know? So if if she's this spirit and she's, why couldn't she? And she's like, I can. I just don't like trick answers. You right. know, I thought that was awesome. I mean, <laughs> yes. I, I remember even laughing back then. <laughs> well, no, you're absolutely right. I, the The focus is a girl and the three most powerful figures are all women. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some stuff going on that's that's even for '82, pretty progressive, really. Yeah, uh, and so that's why this film has that great dichotomy, which can be read as a manifestation of the of the couple. It's a really really conservative film, but it's got this kind of progressive left message. Mm-hmm. So it's I I think it works on a lot of different levels. See how insidious Hollywood is? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we we got to get Randy Quaid. Maybe he can. Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Getting back to actually, if we could touch real quick on on Zelda Rubenstein. Go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, very unusual sort of character to bring in. You know, it's almost like when they first introduce her, her size is 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 poked fun at a little bit. You know, yeah. they sort of step aside. She comes walking in this this sort of you know, tiny woman. Um, but she has, obviously, she's the one who's going to help them. She's the one who's going to come in. She's, she's going to be the one to help them ultimately get what they want. But one of the scenes that I remember that, that, uh, that sticks with me all the time from this, too, is when she's talking to them and she's telling them, your daughter is alive and in this house. And she's giving them like this sort of nice little story about these yeah. spirits and, and how they're there. She's the light. She's the hope. And she then yeah. she goes, now hold on to your seat. Of course, then she's, then yeah. she hits them with the other one. There's something else here. And, and the music swells and you see their yeah. faces suddenly change. It's lying to her. It's telling her things only a child will understand, you know? And, and that's a very, that's a very pivotal point too, because they don't know what's going on. And at this point we don't know what's going on. So it goes from this sort of nice little thing of these spirits that are lost to this other one that wants to keep everybody lost yeah. and is using her to keep them lost. Mm. See, and I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. That is, to me, one of the most effective moments in the film. Uh, and the way it's shot and the way she delivers it and that music cue that you mentioned, uh, how it does that turn. Right. That you, you know, she's fine. Oh, she's wonderful. It's this other life. It's not the end of the world. But uh, right. it's such a great moment. And I think for me, that's when the film shifts. And that's where you start getting scared, uh, particularly as a parent. Yeah. Particularly as a parent. Because this film has a lot of that. You think it's over and it's not. You think it's it's bad, but it's going to get worse. Well, and I, and I love that. That's actually a convention to supernatural type films like the fact that 
things start out and seem very harmless, just like in paranormal activity, for example, the door barely moves and then it progressively gets worse and worse. It intensifies. And that just seems like that's a, um, a a convention to these kind of movies, right? Well, it is, but is it a convention because of this movie? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, because if you think about it in, 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 um, Amityville horror, you're dealing with evil you know, right off the bat. But it, yeah. it progresses, too. I mean, that's a slow oh, it burn. That, it is a slow burn, and you're right. It does progress. There's there's no doubt about that. So you get the progression, but you don't get the whole, you know. I mean, th- think about it. Throughout, we don't know why she's in the TV. We don't right. know what the reasoning is. We're not sure where she is. We're not sure what's going on. We're not sure wh- what is what are the spirits here. Um you know, and and it all obviously by the end we it, once you figure out what happened with this with this particular development, it's all going to make a lot of sense. But you know, so when when she's telling them that, she's telling us at the same time, here's what's going on. Right. It's almost exposition, but not exposition. You know, mm-hmm. like okay, I'll lay it out because it's 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 it's, it's inherent within the story. But it's still filling everybody in that theater on the screen and off in at the same time, nice. which is why it works. And then when it gets to the other part, the negative part, because everyone's you're right, everyone's feeling sort of good. It's like, oh, well, this shouldn't be so bad. And then boom, it's like, wow. And then to look and say, now let's go get your daughter back. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty intense. That That's some great camera work when the camera she stands up and the camera swings around her and it zooms in and she delivers the line yeah uh, that's that's some spielberg right there <laughs> right that that's Seriously. definitely spielberg no doubt about it yeah totally agree so can we get into the fact that a lot of people believe that the poltergeist franchise is cursed <laughs> no no Oddly enough, when we saw this movie in the theater, it was within, I'm pretty sure within a week or so of Dominique Dunn having been murdered by her boyfriend. She was dead the first time I saw this movie. She had already been killed. And it was in the news. So going into the movie, we knew we were seeing somebody on screen who who had recently been murdered. Yeah, so let's, for the listeners who don't know these stories, let's let's lay it all out here, what happened. Do you want to explain more about that, what happened to her, Dr. Shock? Well, yeah, let me, I'm going to, I know she was, she was strangled by her boyfriend. Let me just look it up here. I don't want to, because I I don't have the. Yeah, she's like. Exact story here, but. She was 23 years old. Right, right. She was she was twenty three or mm-hmm. twenty two, twenty three, somewhere around there, and it was in November of eighty two. Well, hold on a second, and because this movie came out in the summer of eighty yeah, two, this didn't was it? this was June of eighty two that this was released. Why did I think I was absolutely convinced that I was aware that she had died when I saw that movie? I'm I'm I must be mistaken. See, there you go. There's there's my memory failing me. It couldn't have possibly been because she died in November of eighty two. Hmm. Maybe you I had a premonition. Sworn, I knew. Maybe it was. Maybe it was the time I watched it on cable. Maybe it was the time I saw it again on cable. Oh yeah. But I remember being being like kind of stricken with, oh wow, this this girl is is dead. As I was watching it, I thought it was right from the get go. Obviously, I'm wrong because I saw this movie in the summer of '82 and she didn't die till November of '82. Uh, but anyway, 
what happened to her was I thought that she had been strangled by her here's what it is she ended her her relationship with with this with this um her boyfriend on October 30th of 82 right before Halloween that same night uh I guess his name was John Thomas Sweeney okay he was a chef at a, an LA night spot um they began a relationship and he was kind of abusive towards her they say here now this is again on IMDb so take this with a grain of salt he was so abusive that she didn't need makeup when she played the role of an abuse victim on Hill Street Blues in one of the episodes. Huh. Jeez. Um, but she ended the uh, relationship right before Halloween of 82. That same night, he raced to her house. Um, uh, her and another actor, David Packer, were rehearsing a scene from V, The Final Battle. Okay. He dragged her outside and strangled her, leaving her brain dead. And she actually hung on for five days. Um, she, where she was removed from life support and, and died. Um, you know, she just wasn't going to come back, I guess, after that. Um, she died 19 days before her 23rd birthday. Yeah. What's interesting is I didn't realize this is her, she's the sister of Griffin Dunn. Oh, Hmm. which I did not realize till this moment. Um, but I guess, so that ties in with the, with the curse, obviously. I mean, this is the first death associated with uh, with Poltergeist. Yeah. So there was. So yeah, that was five months after this was released, and then mm-hmm. Heather O'Rourke, who plays the little girl Carol, Ann. that was right. That, from what I understand, that was before the release of Poltergeist Three. Yeah, that right. she had passed away. Now there are some with Poltergeist Two. Um, now I don't count that one. As much because the, the um, it was it was the gentleman who played and played so well, I might add, um, uh, the the preacher what would be this the preacher, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was um, Julian Beck. He was already dying when he accepted the role, you know, so he knew he was he knew he was going to die soon after accepting that role, and this would probably be his last his last job, you know, his his last role yeah the, the the odd thing about this this whole curse is i mean it depends like maybe 20 30 years from now we'll feel differently like for example everybody associated with the birth of a nation is now dead you know what that's i mean that's true so, like that's true uh, but, and nosferatu how creepy is that everybody who is in nosferatu is now dead right so it's weird it really is but i mean kyle what do you make of this curse Oh, it's it's a bunch of coincidence, but I mean, it is interesting when you're dealing with a supernatural film uh, mm-hmm. to see this kind of uh, these problems happen. Because um, Will Sampson died too, who yes. played the the Native hey, Native American spirit guide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and now, so that was weird. One of the things that that ties into it in a way, and I'd heard that it was with the first film, and then I heard also it was with the second film. That actual cadavers were used for a scene. The yes. uh, hu- the skeletons were real human skeletons. Yeah. Yes, and when the crew found out about that, they had they they almost demanded like a like a, 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 an exorcism or some sort of religious ceremony to cleanse the set, or some yeah. of them did uh, along those lines. And, and I'm wondering now. I don't. I had heard that it was with the first movie. Yeah, with what with the ones in the pool, and yes. then I heard the it was ones in the, the second movie. That's what it was. And I heard the, with the, the second movie, the ones in the cave when they went down there. Um, but that when the crew, when they found out about that, they were kind of freaked out. <clears throat> yeah, the story that that I've heard is it's 
Spielberg got the skeletons for the first film from India because they were cheaper than model skeletons. Yeah, the plastic, yeah. <laughs> and he didn't want Jo Beth Williams to know they were real skeletons until after she had shot all her scenes in the water with them for obvious right. reasons. But now that you brought it up, that that is what most people attribute the curse to is uh, because of that kind of it's a film about the desecration of the dead, which is ironic, which which they right. produce by desecrating the dead. Right. <laughs> it's so and, ironic. And, and so then they lose they lose three actors, uh, one really tragically. Uh, and then to have to have the child actor to have Heather O'Rourke die, I believe, before the third one was even done because they had yeah. to rewrite it. And it, so then it was crap because uh, right. she was gone. And 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 for to have her die really cast this kind of pall of, of the curse onto it. Um, so I, I think that it's, I don't think there's any stock to it, but I think that when you look at it all together, it certainly does cast a shadow on the entire series and the production. So it'll be interesting. And I, I hope I'm, think of, I'm not saying the same thing. Right? I know I'm where you're going. <laughs> but let's see what happens over the next year with this new cast. And hopefully so, nothing bad will happen. So you're saying right. Sam Rockwell's wife should take out a big insurance I'm saying, policy? I'm on saying him. they all, maybe the curse will be broken. We'll see what happens. Yes, heaven forbid. Oh my goodness. Right. That's crazy. But yeah, um, the, Heather O'Rourke, she died at the age of 12. Right. And um, was it? Septic shock or intestinal stenosis, something. Something like that. had happened where where she, I think she was having breakfast one morning and just started to have this intense pain. And by the time they had gotten her to the hospital, I don't know if something had ruptured. Uh, she had a blockage, so, um, um, uh, something along those lines, or or some sort of um, disease in the in, of the intestines that, that that had gone undiagnosed. I can't remember exactly. But wow. she didn't. She never came home again from that. That's you know, horrendous. That was where she had passed um, that that morning. Yeah, I, that's that's about as bad as it gets. I mean, as far as as far as if you're looking at a curse, that's where you're like, wow, that's you know, that was where I think it really started to to, to take hold. Oh yeah, when she it, died, it does look like because you're right. Your your uh, recounting of how she died is accurate. It does look like the filming of Poltergeist Three was pretty much wrapped up. Mm. Okay. Uh, but it was before it was before it was released. I know by the time the movie came out, she had yeah yeah she had died because it okay. came out in eighty eight and she died um, February eighty eight. Okay. Well, and I read this too. Now this could be hype for the film. This could be just total you know, hearsay or whatever, but Joe Beth Williams supposedly had supernatural experiences while she was making this film because when she would, reportedly, when she would get home from filming, the pictures on the wall in her house would be crooked and then she would fix those yeah, and then they would go crooked again. And then, huh. and then Zelda Rubenstein, um, she had an experience when... Uh, where this vision of her dog came to her to tell her goodbye. And hours later, I guess her mom called her and said that her dog had died that same day. And um, that's kind of interesting. And I also read, and I don't know if this is true, so sorry, everybody. I used to be a newspaper reporter, and look at me now. 
like with the Inquirer here, but 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 Zelda Rubenstein supposedly uh, she claimed to have um, some degree of like psychic connections or something like that. But I, that I, I'm I don't know. I mean, that's huh. I wonder. Sometimes I wonder if those things are put out there to hi- I, well, I hype the so. movie. I think with Zelda Rubenstein, because of her, you know, uh, sort of diminutive frame, um, that it might have helped her career if she was even typecast in those sort of roles. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm wondering if maybe that lent itself to it. I don't know. Uh, she did, obviously, up to her death, she was appearing in movies. I'm pretty sure she was in that um, uh, Behind the Mask. I think she had a small part in Behind the Mask. Mm, neat. Uh, the Rise of Leslie Vernon. Uh, but be that as it may, um, that's that's interesting. I had not heard the story about Joe Beth Williams, um, nor about Zelda Rubenstein. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I think it's kind of natural that they would see things and rationalize them. But that mm-hmm. Joe Beth Williams story, which I have heard, is is pretty supernatural. Yeah, and and why yeah. not? If if she was swimming with the skeletons and all, right, uh, right, yeah. exactly. Although, She'd be the one, uh, you know. Although, Although Spielberg, was, yeah, Spielberg himself, nothing ever happened to him, did it? Yeah, he, he was, was dead. Perpetrator. Well, and he was in the water with her because she wouldn't go in the water without him. Mm-hmm. Oh, and okay. and they're they're both hale and hearty to this day. So I, I, right. that's why I don't think it's really a curse. I think it's a bunch of tragedy. Yeah, right. Um, that kind of makes a weird sense within the confines of the narrative itself. Yeah, she was afraid. For the listeners out there who aren't aware, she Joe Beth Williams was. Worried about the swimming pool scene because there were all the, all this electrical equipment and all these lights oh, around yeah. the pool, right? And, and she just was afraid that if all that stuff broke down or fell in, that she'd get fried. And so Spielberg got in the pool with her to shoot the scene and said, "You know, if the light falls in, then we both fry." <laughs> right? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't think. I don't think he'd do that today, and I don't think any no. actor would do it either. No, I don't think so. I think you're right. I think it was definitely a. A different time uh, when that was made because it wasn't too long after this that we had that whole Twilight Zone tragedy. Oh um, man! You know, on the, yeah. on the set of that film with that yeah. helicopter. Um, yeah, that's with, with the helicopter with the kids working at a time they shouldn't have been working, um, and a helicopter that was not uh, that should not have been up and running, up and running. You know, uh, it, it was just that was where I guess everyone's like, okay, we've we've really got to get it. We've really got to get control of this. Um, you know, and it was going to, a tragedy was going to come at some point, And unfortunately that was it. Well, another reason that I think this film is notable, especially, um, because horror does not get very much love or recognition from the Academy. Right. But this was actually nominated for three Academy Awards. And I believe, you know, it appears that it would have won, um, some stuff had it not been for E.T., which right. ended up like right. you know stealing the show from it. Sure, um, and that's unfortunate. But I mean, so this was also the highest-grossing horror film of 1982, mm-hmm. um, and it was the eighth highest-grossing of the year. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, the highest-grossing of Toby Hooper's entire career. Right. So um, and this made that's got to be really bittersweet for him. Yeah. This, <laughs> yeah. Looks like this made seventy six million in the United States. 
um, which isn't wow. isn't bad. I wonder how it will do uh, this upcoming weekend. I should say as we record this, we have not yet seen the remake. We're two days nope. away from it, yep. and we're anticipating. Do you now, think? Uh, real quick, are there any concerns over the most recent trailer? Are there things in this movie that are starting to look like what we've been seeing in a lot of other movies to anybody else? Uh, I have a concern they're getting a little too CGI happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I'm worried that they're going to turn the clown into more of a character. Right. Because the scary thing about the clown is it remained a doll the whole time. And what was scary wasn't when you saw it, it's when you couldn't see it. Right. right. And if the clown becomes too central and too featured, uh, it, it might fall flat. Well said. Right. And, and you see, a lot of what happened to Carol Ann happened, you know, until the very end of the movie. It was happening off, off screen. She was in this right, world, right, right. in this TV, in this movie. And again, I don't know at what point it happens, but you see her get snatched up the stairs. If the remake shows the other side... I'm going to be furious. Yeah. It's going to show it. And I'll tell you why it will, why I believe it will. I hope it doesn't. I agree with you, Kyle. But, you know, because of Insidious, these Insidious mm. movies show the other side. So this probably will too. Yeah. What, one of the I, things I, that, that makes it so scary is Carol Ann is not only missing from the Freeling's life, she's missing from the film. We right. don't see her. We don't know where she is. We hear her voice like they do, uh, right. but we don't know where she is. And so if we see where she is, then that that's all. That right it, yeah, it, yeah. it ruins it. it so it we'll does. see. It ruins it. Yeah, totally. It, it ruins it. And also, if they don't take the time to build the family dynamic like they did in the first one, right? then it's just going to be a whole, well, do we really care that this is happening to these people? Right. Yeah. And that's that's a big thing that I'm I'm worried more about that than 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 even this. You know they're going to go CGI. This is probably a bigger budgeted movie, um, but again, it's it's CGI and horror for me just don't really mix because it don't make sense. You know they yeah. they don't make sense <laughs> together. That you you just don't get enough of a budget in a horror movie to do CGI. It's almost like, well, everyone's doing CGI, so we have to do CGI. Even if Tom Zavini can still make it look pretty damn good at a lot less money, we got to use CGI. Right. And it's frustrating in that regard. So, okay, but okay, the CGI aside, if, if they don't, and I'm not looking for a straight remake. I'm not looking for a scene by scene, you know, Gus Van Sant psycho thing here. I just want to let's do it the right way. There's a reason the first movie worked and it was you didn't see the other side. You cared about the family. Um, you know, the, 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 the clown was was being controlled by the ghost. It, 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 you know, it, it didn't like you said, it didn't. In this one, I, you see it like actually leap and it's a jump scare. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you get those jump scares in there and it's almost like, OK, this is the age of the jump scare. And that's fine, but if they're earned, you know, if if they're not just you know cats running down the stairs or <laughs> right, whatever well, and, it may be. And that's the thing. That's that is an important point. The original has some jump scares. Mm-hmm. You know, he looks under the bed and nothing's there, and he sits up and there it is. Okay, ah, it's yes. a big jump scare. But a lot of the terror <laughs> and the and and the fear in the original, if if we we were looking at stuff, 
we'd never looked at before. Right. Uh, it, and in some ways, it shouldn't have even worked. The idea of the tree is going to eat the kid. I mean, that sounds so stupid when you say it. Yeah. But the visualization of that is really, really frightening. It um, is. And, and when he comes out of there, he's not just covered in, in like bark and dirt. It's almost like he's covered in some sort of goo, like yeah, it's, or something. It's really disgusting. Ectoplasm. Yeah. Right. And then, and then uh, at the end, when when the closet becomes that gaping maw, I mean, that's really scary. Not because it's it's a jump scare; it's just terrifying. Right. The idea of of every child's fear about their closet mutating into everybody's fear about the void. I mean, there there's some really great stuff, and a lot of it, like you say, in this practical effect, is great. Jobeth Williams has to roll around the room. So what did they do? They built the whole room, and they rotated it. Uh-huh. Everything gets swept into the closet because they take the broom and they tilt it up on its end, and everything falls down to the closet. Right. I, and and I know you're right. They're going to do all that with CGI, and it's just not going to look as real because it's not real. Exactly. It's, you're right. They, this was this looked real because it was actually happening. And even that, even the the effect, like it, it wouldn't be CGI, but that really smooth camera effect in the hallway. Yeah, where nice. the hall just got so long. Yeah, it's just a trombone shot, but it works right. so well. It did. It really did. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we we are living in an era. I hate to lament this, not completely across the board, but it seems like. Because we have CGI now, we're we're depending less and less on ways to tell the story through innovative means or through technical means, like that whole hallway shot you're describing. I mean, all, all those were at the service of the story, uh-huh. and and now with CGI, when they can just do it in post production, and it's not necessarily to tell the story; it's just pl- merely for an effect. It just doesn't hold the same power. Right. Um, real quick on the clown here. I, I guess supposedly when, when Robbie was being strangled, the clown's arms, like the actual doll itself, became tight on his neck and he started to yeah. choke. Right. Uh, and um, he said he couldn't breathe. And Spielberg and Toby Hooper thought that he was kind of ad-libbing. And and right. so they they were telling him to keep looking at the camera, but then they saw his face turning purple, and they you know saved him. Um, something that's neat about that clown because that clown was one of the freakiest things to me as a kid. Right. It, it is actually um, on display at Planet Hollywood in Caesar's Palace, Las Vegas. So Kyle, oh, next time we're in Vegas, we should pop in nice. there to see that. That'd be she Go see the damn clown. <laughs> I'm serious. So uh, I go to Vegas at least once a year, it seems like. So I am committing to the listeners of Horror Movie Podcast. The next time I'm there, I'm going to take a picture of that sucker and post it on the website. Um, uh, and you know what? I'll, 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 I will try. I'll, okay. I'll, do, I'll do, take a picture of uh, that ventriloquist dummy I have too, Dan. Yes. <laughs> Please, let us see this thing. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. Um, I meant to mention a little bit ago, sorry, I, I feel like I'm just doing terrible reporting tonight. But the three Academy Award nominations for this were Best Original Score, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. Right. And Kyle, did you read the 
novelization of this film. No. They adapted it. I hate novelizations. (laughs) Why do you hate them? I want to hear this. I don't know why they exist. (laughs) They really don't make any sense. They really don't. No, I I teach a course in adaptation, and and I think moving from a book to a movie, there's a whole lot of interpretation going on. You want to turn a kind of a a very shallow medium into a very complex medium, and so I think a lot of stuff's going on with that. But novelizations almost always try to replicate uh, rather than to develop. Mm, okay. And so then so then it's like, but why 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 would I want to go read a book based on that movie? It just doesn't make any sense to me. So we're going to take this rich, lush, multimedia experience and we're going to reduce it down to words on a page so we can maybe get some new insight into what the characters were thinking. I don't know. I've never read a really good novelization, although I have a little soft spot for Phantom Menace uh, because... Terry Brooks wrote it, and I like that guy. Well, but there's one you should try. I I haven't tried it yet. I will say I've read a different book of his, but um, you know David Fincher's Seven, yeah, is a masterpiece. Uh, a friend of mine, Anthony Bruno, who, who's a crime writer, he did the novelization for Seven, and I bet that's good. It's out of print. I, I, well, he's the one who did the the that recent movie about the uh, the the killer, the Ice Man. Yes, he did. And he was Man, awesome yeah. and. He actually appeared on uh, Movie Podcast Weekly as a guest several times, but sadly, he passed away unexpectedly in um, 20, oh, yes, I remember 2014. That. It was kind of yes. heartbreaking. But I, I remember you posted something about that. Yeah. But at some point, I want to I, I wanna track down that novelization and see if it's as Kyle describes or if it does give, you know, some worthwhile insights. Yeah, well... the. You also nailed something, though. The novelizations come out right with the film, and then they immediately go out of print, and they disappear. <laughs> right. these, these are these are not masterpieces, even when they're written by great writers. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're just they're just part of the product promotion, and and it's a way to cash in a little bit. Um, I would love to teach a film and a novelization in my class, but I can't ever get anything in print. I'd have to do something really current. Uh, and then I'm rolling my dice, but yeah, so I have not read the novelization of Poltergeist. I gotcha. Well, uh, speaking of the word Poltergeist, as we start to kind of wrap this up, um, from what I've read here, the word Poltergeist is German for noisy ghost or a common translation of it is also rumbling spirit. So that is correct. Kyle, the man of monsters and myths and so forth. Could you tell us what you know about the, the, the definition of a poltergeist? Well, you, you got it. I mean, that is the German, the poltergeist is generally, uh, the spirit that interacts with its environment. Uh So a poltergeist, a poltergeist haunting is a haunting that is usually manifested by physical objects being displaced uh, rearranged or thrown violently around the room, which is a, a different, fr- it's a very unusual kind of haunting, uh, because most hauntings manifest with just, uh, spectral figures or you see things, uh, but you usually don't have a, a violent interaction with the things in the room. And so the kind the culmination of the poltergeist traditionally 
manifesting in this movie is when the kid's bedroom is going nuts and all the toys are flying around and and it, it's a really one of my favorite scenes uh well because of all the star wars plot product placement uh <laughs> but but it's it's a violent ghost it's an interactive ghost and there have been re- a lot of reported manifestations in real life that this is a type of uh this is a type of haunting but it's it's a dangerous type of haunting because you can get hurt right and and so i think that that's something that spielberg tapped into maybe he read something about the poltergeist when was really able to make a more kind of physically manifested violent uh ghost movie Hmm. yet again and i know i keep harping on this but it's amazing to me he kept it pg pg this is pre-13 but he kept this thing pg i had read at some point they did want to give it an r but he fought it and he did get it back to a pg yeah yeah well of course, Hooper, that makes sense. Hooper probably yeah. would have wanted it to be R. And so right. they pushed it with the face-ripping scene, mm-hmm. uh, which pushed that envelope, especially for me at 10 years old or whatever oh, I yeah. was. Oh, yeah, me too, me too. <laughs> I mean, that, that'll give you the nightmares forever. Yeah. Yep. Although yeah. for me, the, the the maggoty steak also Oh, that was me gross. Out. And the chicken with the butt, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he had been eating that, that, that chicken. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that whole, that, that was, that's all Hooper. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> you could tell. No, de- no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it's it, it's interesting because I've I've been. I'm convinced, as I sit here, that I once lived in a house that was haunted, and it was not long ago. I'm talking maybe about you know it was when my kids were very young. Um, we had lived in this house from the turn of the century. It was right by these railroad tracks, and it was where the workers on the tracks used to live in this row of homes that we lived in. Um, and I have a couple of experiences that, you know, that, that were hauntings, but nothing, if ever, ever anything flying around the room or anything like that, you know, it, 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 because I don't know how, I know how I reacted to the one. I really don't know how I would have reacted to the other. Oh yeah. You know, cause when you have just even a regular haunting, you, you kind of want to get out of there. I didn't, I never want to, it was never to the point that like, we got to move, we got to leave. We got to, sometimes you're stuck there. I mean, I was, didn't have the financial means to move. Uh, at that point, while when when these things were happening, otherwise I would have been out of there. It's like everyone says in the movies, "Why don't you just get out?" I would have loved to have gotten out. I just couldn't. Um, <laughs> but when things, if things started flying around the room, it might have it might have pushed me out the door a little quicker. Right. Well, and that's a critique of Poltergeist. Why don't they get out? Why don't they leave? Well, first they can't because they can't leave Carol Ann behind. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then everyone's like, why are you spending the night? And of course, they even aren't even spending the night. But they're trying to get out. They're getting out as fast as he can. The, the, mm-hmm. the house in Poltergeist is tied to Steve's job. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that that's so important. And I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier about Steve failing is not only does he fail to keep his family safe, he's the reason they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the one who puts him in jeopardy. Uh, they get their daughter back, and instead of going to a hotel immediately, he goes uh, to a meeting. <laughs> right. Uh, and again, maybe that's some of the, the the cautionary tale of the 80s. Don't get so caught up in your career. Uh, take care of your family. Go home now and then. Yes. So I, I think it's saying a lot about homes and mobility and the the rise of the suburb and the, the disregard of the dead. There's so many layers to this film that have become ubiquitous now, 
but they were pretty new then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I agree. Um, at the very, at the very least, it's not an ancient Indian burial ground. It's people. That's the line right. from the movie, right? They're just people. Right. They're just people. You, you, well, you, yeah. You move the headstones, but you didn't move the people. But they're ticked. Yes. Well, yeah. 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 Right. Absolutely. You know, right. there is a, uh, well, there's kind of a real life story like this. <laughs> <laughs> but it's has no, to be. No, it is. It's, it, it's based on that true story where they moved the headstones, right? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I'm referring to um, the story of the Pet Cemetery, um, which is a really interesting film. It, it's not. I'm not talking about Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. I'm talking about um, who's that very famous documentarist? Gates of Heaven. Yeah, thank you. About. That's exactly Gates of it. Heaven, yep. Yeah, it's not a horror movie, but if anybody wants to see a really weird freaking documentary, it's well, what it, I think what's great about Gates of Heaven is it starts out as this documentary about a, this animal cemetery, mm-hmm. and then it just sort of evolves from there, and the, then the documentarian just takes it wherever it's going to go. It ends up being about these two brothers who, who work for their father's pet cemetery, and you start learning more about them yes. uh, and focusing more on them, you know. And it's... and there's this really bizarre scene with this woman living in this shack, and uh, there's like all of these strange things going on because the documentarian just said that's a good scene. It doesn't fit with the story I'm telling, but I got to get it in there it's somehow. It's so awesome, everybody. Yeah. It's called Gates of Heaven. It's from 1978. Errol Morris, and it's it's kind of about this theme of you know there was a pet cemetery they needed to move it or they were trying to move it and it, it raised all kind of ruckus in the community. Yeah, the, the moral of the story: do not move cemeteries, right? Actually, the, I have a really I have a story. I was years ago I was doing uh, genealogical research and I had met up with this with this woman who was a distant cousin and she was trying to find one of her ancestors. So we went up to a town in Pennsylvania called Pottsville. Okay, and most people are going to know Pottsville because that's where Yingling beer is is brewed. Um, you know, it was a very popular beer on the East Coast. I'm not sure if it's gotten out to where you guys are. Um, but and and we go to the cemetery for Saint. It was it was a Catholic cemetery. The cemetery is right behind the brewery. And I'm telling you, if I had to be buried anywhere, I would pick here because you smell the hops, you smell the brewing going on. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So we're looking for this one woman uh, who was one of the founders of the church. Okay, we're looking all up and down, and we can't find, we're not finding any headstones older. And this was back in 1820. We're not finding any headstones older than like 1880, 1890. And I said, that's very strange. We're looking in all corners of this thing. We find an old gentleman who was working there, and we went up and asked him. And he said, well, I'll show you. He, we walked down the street. Possibly was all hills. They say it's like the Rome of Pennsylvania. It's like built on all these hills. Mm-hmm. We walked down the hill, and there's the church, a newer building, and there's a parking lot. He points to the parking lot and says, she's under there. And he says what they did she's was— She's under there? That's what she's he said? under the parking lot. Wow. The founders of the church, the original burials, are under there. They never moved them. They never moved the headstones. They threw the headstones out. They wow. meant to put up a memorial to them in the new cemetery, but didn't bother. So people who park in the See? church are parking on the founders. See, big yellow taxi all over again, paved paradise and put up a parking lot. That's terrible. And, and so, that's so then that's what they did. They didn't even keep the headstones. They threw them away. 
And they, like he said, they were going to put a memorial up in the new cemetery, but they just never got around to it. Oh, now see, there's going to be some poltergeist action over that. Like that's terror. I mean, that seems like that's immoral to me. You think, I want to say, well, it's yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh, definitely. That's what this movie's about. This movie's about corporate greed, disrespect for the past, uh, the the threat against the nuclear family, the traditional home, the family values. It's all going on in this. Nice. All and, right. And it's all the dude's fault. Of course. It's <laughs> it's the guys, man. It's always the male. <laughs> okay. Well, as we wrap up here with our final thoughts and ratings, I uh, just want to tell the listeners what's going on here. So it, it is two days before the release of the remake as we record this. But don't worry, within this very same episode that you're listening to, you're going to hear our review, which we're recording next week, of the new film. But it'll be all within the same episode. So we're excited about that. Um, for those of you who have not seen this original film, and I suspect that there are people out there like that. I, I bet there are people who saw it was rated PG horror fans, and they're like, nah, PG 80s movie. I'll skip it. But here's what you got to know. The Chicago Film Critics Association named it the 20th scariest film ever made. It, it's also, it maintains, according to my last check, like 88% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. It was selected by the New York Times as one of the best 1,000 movies ever made. Oh. And it also received recognition from the American Film Institute, AFI. It ranked 84 on their 100 years of 100 thrills. And so wow. it, it does have some reputable weight to it. And, and let's be honest, P PG in 1980s is much <laughs> different than PG-13 in this day and age. True. PG-13 in this day and age sort of signifies here's here's something we're trying to scare the kiddies. We're trying to scare the, the teenagers out on a date. Um, whereas PG back then they were doing it obviously so that more people could see the movie. That's what allowed me and my friends to go see this movie <laughs> on that beautiful summer day that it was PG, you know, and, and get the hell scared out of us. Well, um, yeah, if Hooper had made it, it would have been R, but Spielberg, yeah. Spielberg, well, right. he, he says PG and it's PG. Yeah. And yeah, he has power, but yeah, initially it was, it was going to be rated R, but anyway, so for those who are, are not in into that or whatever, I mean, it was originally given an R rating. I think Spielberg works, pulled some strings or something. So mm -hmm. anyways, um, if you guys are to have a studio behind it, if there was no yeah. studio behind it, it would have been R. Oh yeah. Right. I yeah. agree. All right. Well, so final thoughts and ratings. And for me, I I really enjoyed revisiting this film. And I have to confess, I was one of those people who's kind of underestimating it. I, I remember it scaring me as a kid. I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. But having rewatched it again, it is a freaky movie. It's well made. It's well done. Um, and you can tell from the discussion here with uh, the mad doctors that this film is significant. It ha it carries some weight. There's a a real story with it, and um, so I'm very impressed with it. It's it is kind of a slow burn. I don't love slow burns. I'm I'm sorry. It's a flaw of mine. And and supernatural isn't necessarily my sub subgenre of horror, but it's still an eight out of ten for me. You guys, this is a definite buy. It's a must see at least once in your life. 
if you're a horror fan. What do you say, Dr. Shock? For me, this is a, I, I give this one a, a 9.5. It's just, it's not on my list, so I didn't give it a 10, but it's, it's damn near could be. Um, it, it, it has the sentimental value, but it also has a lot of things that, that it does right, you know, and, and it, 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 it's a movie that I can watch a hundred times and on the hundred and first viewing, I'll still enjoy it just as much. So it's a 9.5 and it's, you have to own it. Okay. Buy it. And then what do you say? Dr. Walking Dead. Well, I've probably watched this film 20, 30 times. Uh, one of the reasons why I love my wife so much is she, she'll put it on when she's cleaning the house. Nice. Uh, just because she loves to have it on. It's one of her favorite films of all time. Uh, it's It tops my horror list, uh, even though there's a lot of great horror films that come close and are maybe a little more frightening in some ways, certainly with bigger body counts. Uh, but because of the childhood experience, because of my parental fears now, uh, I do give Poltergeist a 10. Uh, it's, I love it. I think it's terrifying. It's always terrifying, but it's also beautifully made. And I, I have more to say about it, but I'm going to talk about it in context of the remake. Nice. Hopefully not in a drug induced rant. <laughs> right. uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping this remake isn't horrible. But I think every fan of horror movies should see this and own it. I think uh, if you're if you like ghost stories, this is one of the quintessential American ghost stories. Well, and real quick question: We have not seen the remake yet, as we've said, not just yet. But at this point, from what you know now, would you guys, would you gentlemen, advise that the listeners watch the original before seeing the remake? Oh hell yeah! Yes. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, uh, that's that's not even that's that's yeah. I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. Because because there are things about the remake just from the trailer that have me concerned. But that aside, this is a this is a classic. Mm-hmm. You know, you you always I think you always have to go back to to, to the classic. I mean to 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 see the original to see the remake first and then go back and watch this one. It, no. it seems almost a tragedy in a way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, <laughs> that, that's hilarious. You guys are cracking me up. Um, no, I, absolutely. So as I pull up the list here, Dr. Shuck, just wanted to tell the listeners in case they were curious about this. Um, yeah, as we've said, it's, it's Dr. Walking Dead's number one. And on Dr. Shock's all time list, it's his number eight okay, favorite horror sorry. films. All right. So there you go. Yeah, so every- absolutely. Everybody stay tuned. We will um, just momentarily be bringing you our feature review of Poltergeist from 2015. We didn't know where else to go. You did the right thing coming here. Maddie was the first one to notice things. Mom, how will you get here? Who are you talking to? When was the last time you had contact with her? Before she was taken? It's a fixer-upper. All the houses are like this in our price range. Do you want to see Jake? No way. <laughs> you try. <laughs> we like this house! As we continue our Poltergeist coverage, I am still joined by my co-host and friend, Dr. Walking Dead, Mr. Kyle Bishop, the zombie and poltergeist expert. <laughs> 
That's right. I need to do a poltergeist book. Yeah, I would love it if you did that. Could I help fund that? Like, not that I'm a rich guy or anything, but what if I like threw you donations every once in a while? Would that add up? Um, I actually don't need any money. <laughs> I need I need time. Can you give me time? <laughs> okay. Uh, hmm. Now that's one that I'm definitely short on. <laughs> like, so. no, I I am thinking about doing a book on haunted house movies. And there would definitely be a chapter on Poltergeist in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially after recording the first part of this show, I had some ideas yes. uh, that I want to kind of explore further. And then after watching the remake and some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight, I think there's really some stuff that could be said. Poltergeist is largely unexamined in the academic community, mm. which I think is a real shame. Is that why, is that because people just thought it was a Steven Spielberg kitty movie? Do you think? Yeah. A lot of the horror scholars are really into the, like a lot of fans uh, are into more hardcore scares and gore and kills. And as we mentioned last week, uh, Poltergeist is really interesting because there are in fact no deaths. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, some would maybe even consider it maybe not a horror film, but more of a supernatural thriller uh, because it is kind of a different focus. But Kyle, I got to re reiterate and reemphasize once again to the younger fans who didn't give it a try. Since our last conversation, which they just listened to moments ago, I actually rewatched the 1982 version again Good. And, you know, yet another time. And I am just struck by how much horror I think is still in the film, despite that there aren't any deaths to speak of. I mean, I I mean, I think it's along the lines of a, a pretty formidable horror film. Yeah. Well, I'm with you. You know, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I just think that you're so right. I think people are underestimating this. And it's very disappointing, and I'm, I'll be the first to confess, as I said earlier in the show, I, I hadn't revisited it in years because I'm like, yeah, PG horror, it's Steven Spielberg. That's pretty, pretty weak sauce, you know, but um, it's still quality filmmaking. And I would actually, uh, I'm going to say something big here. I would put okay. the 1982 version up among the ranks of films such as the Shining and The Thing. I mean, I don't think it's... For me, I don't love it as much as those, but I, I think it is among the ranks of that caliber film. No argument here. <laughs> I know. It's your all-time favorite, so... Those are those are all on my top ten list. That's right. They sure are. Now, in case listeners are curious, here we are, um, Dr. Walking Dead and I, and uh, you'll notice that Dr. Shock is missing he's unable to see the new 2015 film this week so he has bowed out for the remainder of this episode and wolfman josh i found out is traveling to columbia this week so he won't be here either and we will miss them very sad he, about that josh will hopefully not explore a uh, ancient ruin that's protected by flesh-eating plants <laughs> yeah exactly and, see what no, and uh, ho hopefully he will not uh, allow his cohorts and friends to do um, the surgical procedures on him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Man, I, I loved the human elements of the ruins, but hated the monster. I've said it many times, but yeah, no, I I'm with you. <laughs> That's just, Oh boy. Well, anyway, just to reiterate then for the listeners, 
we typically, and I'm serious, we typically don't reveal spoilers on horror movie podcasts, but in order to compare and contrast these poltergeist films in a proper versus manner, because we're battling, we have to discuss the spoilers. And even though it's a brand new 2015 film, it's still in theaters. Just want everybody to be warned, full-blown spoilers right now from the start. So, um, Kyle, my first question, I'm dying to know, your number one all-time favorite is Poltergeist 1982. So, what did you think of this remake? <laughs> um, all right. Unnecessary? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, Expected yes. more anger. No, I'm not angry. Um, and it's it, it had moments. I will have some positive things to say about the film. Uh, it is not a zero. Okay. But um, but I, I it seemed, and I think I've talked about this before, we've had a glut of remakes since about 2002. Uh, most of the great horror films of the 70s have been remade. And I think pretty much every single remake has fallen short. Whereas I've been quite entertained by the more original new films that have come out. So I think that the remake is a dangerous game anyway, because mm. uh, you are dealing with some beloved texts and you're trying oftentimes to make a remake financially viable. They pick a commercially successful film. And so then it's like, but then why? <laughs> because why remake a film that was already good or, or that already mm-hmm. has a lot to offer? More money. But, but Kyle, does your statement hold up? For something like the hills have eyes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, you, <laughs> so even even that one you didn't appreciate as much as the original. No, I didn't. And I think part of that was um, hills have eyes. The power of that film was its particular place in cultural history, and so the remake kind of fell out of that for me. Okay. Now, uh, uh, I can appreciate that actually, but uh, are we only talking seventies or? Are, is it okay to talk 80s as well on this? We can talk 80s as well. Because, um, like, My Bloody Valentine, there's an argument there. Because, like, there, the, I will give you that one. There's a little bit of an argument there. Okay. Okay. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, though, I, I did not like okay. uh, how they, they turned Freddy into a victim. They turned uh, Mike Myers into a victim. They turned Jason into a more sympathetic character. Um, Last yes. House on the Left was total whitewash of the original. <laughs> and yes. don't get me started on every Texas Chainsaw Massacre film after the original. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, I'm with you. Okay. So yeah, I, there is some there is some gratuitousness to the remake, and I think re- remakes are up against a challenge. I teach a class in adaptation, and remakes are certainly uh, under that umbrella. So, so when you're making a remake, a, a screenwriter, a, a director, it's a it's a tightrope act. You want to be true to the source. You want to maintain the the story, but you have to do something new because otherwise, what are you doing? Uh, what's the point of having having the remake? So, with Poltergeist, I know kind of what they're doing with the remake and kind of what's important. Now, it's thirty three years later, whatever. Yes, exactly. One thing I appreciated about the remake, so I, I want to open up with something positive. Okay. Is it's still technophobic. It's still got that central focus on a mistrust of technological devices 
and how uh, technology somehow is a way to bridge the gap between our world and the afterlife. And so I thought that was very clever, how they kept the TV in, but they added you know, the tablet and the smartphone and, mm-hmm. and some more electronic devices. So I thought that was quite clever. Yes. And in, it, in fact, wasn't it the opening shot that was like a tablet uh, zombie game? Like you were in yeah. the middle of a horror video game. Yeah. Right. No, they know what they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And clearly there's this idea of, oh yeah, this is a similar story in the new age. It looks like David Lindsay Abair is the uh, screenwriter on that. And so he did a pretty good job of updating this. As we talked about at the first part of the show, so much of the technology of the original is really period centric. Mm-hmm. You know, like the invention of the remote control and and the, the rise of having television in the bedroom, which was pretty new in the early 80s. <laughs> this film plays with the idea of having devices pretty much everywhere in the house. And so there is a very cool sequence when the kind of the spiritual energy moves from electronic device to electronic device. And I thought that was relatively effective. Mm-hmm. And and it plays on the kind of the fears we have that these devices are, you know, there's a lot of urban legends and stuff that any if you have a device with a camera, the camera is on all the time and someone's monitoring you. <laughs> that that your your phone, if you download the Facebook Messenger app, that gives Facebook the the <laughs> legal consent to monitor your behavior and to videotape you at all time. <laughs> Which, if true, is terrifying. Right. Uh, but I'm going to just hope that that's not true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there is a lot of distrust and fear associated with our jacked-in culture. And the film does that. The film plays around with that quite a bit. Well, was there? maybe you could help me with something that I think I missed. There was like a setup and payoff opportunity that I think they just didn't pay off or I missed it. At one point, they mentioned that the... Um, they almost emphasize it, almost underscore that there are speakers that are set up throughout oh, the house. Yeah. yeah, and and I was really expecting that to come back around, but I don't recall anything that they did with that. Do you? Nope. Oh, bummer. Okay. Yeah, because they set up that this is a super high tech house that the f- previous owner was really interested in in electronics and wiring, and nothing. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely nothing came of that. All the engagement is through the devices that the, uh, I forget their family name, Bowers or yeah, Bowen. the Bow- Bowens. Yeah. It's all technology that the Bowens bring with them, mm-hmm. whereas the setup was kind of like maybe one of the reasons why the house is empty is there's this inherent issue with the, with the wiring or the technology. Well, so, missed opportunity. I totally agree now. The biggest missed opportunity for me, I mean, they actually, even though this wasn't something that was prominent or even, I don't even recall it in the original, but there is a lot of setup of these electrical towers and the electrical lines. I mean, they show so many shots of that. I'm like, ooh, I was actually intrigued, Kyle. And I'm like, I can't wait to see how this comes into play in this story. And it was like nothing. Well, yeah, it's there. Um, and one thing I'm, I want to circle back around to later is the, the closet portal in the new version is very electrical. 
And so you do get a lot more manifestations of the spirits with electric shock and sparks and lightning. And the the closet is set up that way. They can't enter the closet at one point because of a barrier of electrical forces. Uh, the exit port is more electric than in the original. The static electricity, the shocking on the banister, the hair raising. So the electricity is all through that. The problem is, for me, it wasn't scary because I watched uh, Better Call Saul, <laughs> which I don't know if you saw. Uh, some of it I've seen, yes. But yeah, but there's a, there's a central plot line about uh, this kind of phobia of electronics and electronic devices uh, that the, the daughter, the oldest daughter, tips off about that right at the opening uh, <laughs> when Kendra complains about all those power lines are going to give her cancer. Yeah. So from that point on, it, it seemed... It threw me out of the narrative a little bit because it seemed sticky and not scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, so are we to understand then, were we supposed to get the impression that these electrical currents, like all of this presence of electricity, um, was susceptible or, or I guess was conducive to them, um, you know, these interactions with the spirit world? I would say the latter, yeah. Yeah, okay. Conducive is a great word because it's an electric word. <laughs> yes, it is. So yeah, there it's it's it is conducive. They they use the lines, the power, the electricity, the devices, as a way to tap back into our world. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the huge flaws with this film that is only really addressed in Poltergeist Two is why this house. If we've got this huge subdivision on this huge former cemetery. Why the why are the manifestations occurring now, and why are they only targeting that house? And uh, this film does not satisfactorily address that point. Yeah. Whereas with the original, um, we talked about this in the first part of the show. It really kind of is catalyzed by the the sacrifice of the bird uh, in kind of a spiritual way, but more importantly, it's the digging of the swimming pool. The digging of the swimming pool is really the catalyst that kicks off the the original film, because as we learned from Poltergeist 2, it's not so much the cemetery that's the problem, it's the fact that that crazy preacher dude buried himself and all of his followers under the ground, and that was where the swimming pool broke through. Yeah. Yes. None of that's in 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 the remake, and so the 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 absence of the dead pet. The absence of the swimming pool, the absence of the disturbing of the soil, you know, the the digging, the hole, um, all that's gone, and that is really kind of central and essential to the 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 haunting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that, and um, and I love that that concept or that idea. Now, I don't recall whether these houses now they do they have basements, like especially in the first, the original no, they, film. Yeah, no, they they can't. Okay, because uh, yeah, I mean that that's exactly what because that was my first question. It's like okay, so there's something about breaking the hallowed ground where the bodies were supposed to be. Yeah, and so and that's why yeah. they couldn't install the basements, right? Because they just left the bodies there. You know, they couldn't tear yeah, into the, those. The developer knew. The developer knew about all right, that. right, okay. and so you get that you get that shift because in the swimming pool in the original. Uh, the corpses aren't in coffins. They're all loose. Yeah. Uh, whereas the corpses that pop up 
at the climax of the film all erupt out of their coffins. And so there's a duality in the original Poltergeist that's really quite fascinating. Uh, with this one, you don't really get the the coffins coming up out of the ground. You get a couple of you know arms reaching up out of the, the ground. Um, and then you get this inexplicable horde of like millions of dead, dead creatures, mm -hmm. which would far surpass the logistics of a cemetery. That's so, true. Yes. All, all the, I know we're talking about something that isn't realistic, but that's not realistic. Well, yeah. I mean, no, this is, I, I think it's a legitimate complaint. So backing up then in 1982 version, when, you know, they were not in their coffins in the swimming pool, but then they came up through the house and places in their right. coffins. What do you think was the distinction there? What did they want to tell us by by making them, you know, different? Well, it's um, that's a really good question. When the portal in the original, when the portal in the living room opens up and they're sifting through the artifacts that fall through onto the floor, they note that there's very old artifacts and there's more recent artifacts. And so the corpses in the swimming pool represent this earlier puritanical cult, whatever it is. And then the, the coffins represent the, the more recent generations that were buried there, you know, 20 years ago. Mm, okay and and so what's interesting is you kind of have that sense of of a desecration both of the recent and the ancient that it, it there's there's an alliance between the two it's nice. not like hey you've desecrated these this ancient burial ground because both films still have that line right we're not talking ancient tribal burial ground right but there is kind of the the older dead and the more recent dead and both have been wronged <laughs> uh, in the first film, whereas the second film, we really only have the more recent dead. Yes. And their rage is less explicable uh, than that of the, the original. <clears throat> because one of the great moments, and, and uh, Dr. Shock talked about this, is that scene when uh, Tanya, whatever her name is, um, Tan Tanjina, she says to, to the mom, hold on to yourself because there's a spirit with her yeah. and he's more powerful than the rest. And they all look to him for guidance and he's keeping them from going to the light. The beast. So the beast, right? The right. beast, which we find out in the second film is the preacher. So the first film has this sense of there is an entity, there is a force, there is a consciousness that has riled up the spirits. And he's preventing the spirits from progressing to the other side. And he's using the, the coffins as a, a way to attack and deter the family. None of that exists in the, in the, re, in the remake because the remake is just, well, there's just a whole bunch of spirits. Yeah. Like I, there's no leader. There's no chief antagonist. I could not believe for the life of me, I was astounded that they left out the beast. I mean, the beast is essentially dropped out of this remake, right? Yeah. I mean, there is no beast. And it's like, that's insane. And you know what's really weird about that, Kyle? This is a little trivia that I learned. Um, I guess, supposedly, the MGM lion, you know how uh -huh. he has that roar? Well, uh, yeah. I guess in 1982, they used that for the beast or the beast sound effect for that lion, one or the other. I forget which way it goes. <laughs> but th those two are related. Well, at the beginning of this film, I don't know if you noticed... 
But when the MGM lion went to roar, it was like hardly anything came out. And so <laughs> there was no beast in the film, nor was the beast sound effects at the beginning of the MGM lion. <laughs> that is that is such a great way to explain the film that were, was to follow. <laughs> This film is a lion that goes rawr. It really is. Yeah, because, and here's the other thing. Uh, I'm going to be, it's going to seem like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I'll really try to support all this. Um, I think in many ways, this film respected or, or tried to respect the original 1982 version. But at the same time, this is actually shorter, significantly shorter the, yeah. This is 93 minutes, the runtime, and the original was 114 minutes. And this doesn't have, for all intents and purposes, this doesn't have that final 20 minutes Yeah, no, finale. the last act's gone. <laughs> yeah, that finale, when, you know, everything is supposed to be better. Uh, it's crazy to me that they dropped that, too, and the Beast. It's like, guys, you you were following the story beats pretty well, but then you like left out the end of the movie for the remake. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Okay. Because <laughs> um, here's, here's the thing about The Beast, and this is going to go into my larger argument. Okay. The, the, the fear of the original is not just that their little girl was abducted. The little girl was abducted by a man. Okay, so it's this this creepy old dude, and we don't know it's a creepy old dude yet, but it's this male entity, this kind of demonic force, this this evil being that has already like trapped a bunch of other souls. He's the one who leads this little girl astray. And again, that wonderful, wonderful speech by Zelda Rubinstein, which is he speaks to her like a child. He says things only a child will understand. Mm -hmm. um, he pretends to be her friend. He keeps him close to him. I mean, that is terrifying. Yes. Because that's how abductions happen. That's that's the real world where you get these guys who are like, hey, are you lost? Let me help you. I'll give you some candy, you know, whatever it is. Right. Now we have this kind of random, well, your daughter has a predilection to the shining or something. So, uh, all these spirits want her with them for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's not nearly as scary. Oh, it's like, so what? There's no ringleader. There's no motive. I mean, there's really no motive yeah, to, the, for, to the remake. Yeah. For taking the child. Yeah. She's six years old in this. And in this one, her name is Madison or Maddie. Yeah. Yeah. Not Carol Ann, but yeah, she's Which, the equivalent. It's weird that they renamed the characters, but I can see them trying to get away from too much association with the original. And I do like, um, I was I was worried about it, but I do like how Kennedy Clements, the, the actress, she really did make the they're here line her own. Oh, yeah. Because mm -hmm. it's so iconic. And I was wondering how she was going to deliver that line without making a, a joke of it. Yeah. And I think it worked. I think she did all right. And I think she was a good little child actress. Um, I, I agree with that. I totally do. I, I And, you know, I was going to tell you, I think the reason they changed the character names is because they've lost so many of them to death, right? I think that maybe yeah. they felt like they should preserve those characters or their memories. Or maybe they felt like there would be criticism, you know, for, I guess... I don't know. <laughs> I think you're. I think you're giving them a lot of 
credit. Oh, oh really? <laughs> so, good for you. <laughs> well, maybe they didn't want a poltergeist situation in, in their yeah, but see, house. <laughs> um, this is Dickens stuff. Their name, man, Freelings. Free. They want to be free. Free of the house. And now we just get Bowens. <laughs> Lame. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that is definitely uh, <laughs> it's kind of a tip-off. Yeah, there's nothing there. I I just I think names are crucial and I think they can be overplayed. Uh but I don't know. It's it's there's so much else wrong with this film. I'm not going to quibble over the fact that they changed their names. Yeah, that's true. Now, the biggest thing you said earlier in this same episode, you said you were going to be furious if yeah. they showed us the other side and yeah. you, you know what? They did. And not yeah. only did they, they showed it quite a bit and yeah. it was underwhelming. Yes, but <laughs> this is why I'm not furious. Okay. Showing the spirit world with a remote-controlled drone is super damn clever. <laughs> so, yes, I predicted correctly uh, that they would show us the other side because we're in a generation where you can't do anything off screen. <laughs> right. You can't let the audience imagine anything on their own. <laughs> so I was braced for them to show the other side, which of course they did. Um, but the way they did it was so unexpected and so interesting and so unique that I kind of let it go. Wow. Uh, kind of that idea of, hey, no one has ever tried that before. <laughs> Uh, now, we can get into the logistics of how exactly radio waves work between this life and the afterlife <laughs> and why the GPS trackers still work. But it was clever. It was clever enough that I wasn't infuriated. And I agree it was underwhelming, but I liked the idea that the spirit world was um, kind of a mirror image of the house. But okay. um, but I see where they were trying to go for some cool Geiger kind of stuff with, oh, we'll make the whole house built out of corpses and yeah, it remind me of um, aliens. Yeah, down but it, but it was too it was too CGI heavy. Oh man, so they didn't, much they didn't look like dead bodies. They looked like some kind of weird cartoon demon things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they reminded me of like um. Zemeckis's like Christmas Carol, like <laughs> yeah, something out of there. They were they were unsettlingly uncanny, but they weren't frightening. Not and they all. they did the thing, you know this this I, the mummy kind of started at the idea that a CGI overextended jaw is frightening. And uh, the one CGI effect that was effective is when he sees the Phantom Maddie, mm -hmm. who like has no eyeballs or something. That was pretty damn scary. Um, but the whole spirit world side didn't work f very well for me, partially because that idea of their, the, the other world and our world being parallel is so effectively rendered in Silent Hill, um, oh, yeah. especially the video games, although the movies do okay, that we've kind of seen that already. Yeah. Uh, so rendition of the other side, thumbs down. Use of a drone, thumbs up. <laughs> that. That's hilarious. Well, I'm I'm surprised but happy to hear that that was okay with you. Yeah, for me it was like because as you pointed out so well earlier in the episode, when in the 1982 version, that's part of what's scary is because you don't see Carol Ann, you don't know where she went, and you don't even know what she's experiencing, what it looks like. But 
this kind of pulls back the curtain on the wizard, so to speak. And you, you get to see where she is and what it looks like. And yeah. I don't know, it really took a lot of the um, wind out of my sails. Of course it did. But when they do show the other side, when you were in the theater, did you did you cry out, Bishop is right again? <laughs> I thought of you immediately. I, I you didn't. didn't. I didn't exclaim aloud. You should, you should have exclaimed. I should have. I really should have. But uh, okay. So how about this? Here's what I want to know. <laughs> I'm really happy. We we had feared that the clown was going to be a major component, like a yeah. like a character in and of itself. But I was happy to see that the clown played, you know, a similarly a similar role as it did in 1982. But yes. this has more clowns. Were you yes. okay with that? Uh, I think this is typical of remakes. We know that. Mm-hmm. So they're going. You think one clown is scary. We'll give you six. Yeah. Um, a box of clowns. Yeah, a whole box of clowns. I liked it. Uh, my wife, <laughs> she was sitting next to me going, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not right. Um, I think that the escalation of the multiple clowns was pretty good, especially because there was still only the one menacing clown. The others were just kind of creepy crawling. Right. And so I was okay with a little bit more clown. Um, I was okay because the clown to me appeared to be all practical effects, uh, or the CGI was super good for the clown sequence. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the clowns walking around or talking or anything that would drive me nuts. Yeah. Uh, I like the use of the the nose. I like the pitter patter, the feet. He really only jumped at the kid once, which isn't too far out of what happened in the original. Yeah. But I thought they shot their wad. They already did the clown. The clown <laughs> encounter isn't supposed to happen till the the last night. And of course then there was no last night. Yeah. Yeah. They're... So they, they had the clown attack and the tree attack at the same time, yeah. which to me was like, ah, come on. It's, I, it's, there's no escalation. There's no pacing there. I'm with you. I noted that too. I'm like, wow, those things are back to back in this remake. And that is a huge mistake. And let's yeah. talk about that tree attack uh, while we're on it. Like, oh my goodness. Th- they were, <laughs> they were reaching figuratively with the tree uh-huh. attack and literally, like, the tree reaches through the house. <laughs> yeah, boo. Yeah. Too much CGI. Again, not realistic, even though it's not realistic. And the tree didn't eat him. <laughs> yeah, and that really bugged me. It just kind of threw him around and dropped him. No, man, the, the tree actually eating the kid to cause a distraction from the parents so they could abduct Carol Ann. I mean, that's the whole thing. Plus, it's the whole idea of consumption and and swallowing up the kid. And uh, it's all gone. It's all yeah. ripped out of there. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the freakier parts of the original was that that tree was, like, eating him. So I, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, it's almost like this version was a little bit neutered because of that. And because the tree was so cgi that made me think, I mean, I, I actually love this director. I love his work on Monster House. The director is Gil Kennan. And mm-hmm. it made me think so much of Monster House. Because in that in that movie, did you see that one, Kyle? I have not. Definitely worth your time. Seriously, it is built. I'd love to read your paper on that. It's an animated horror, horror film. But it's Ooh. really, it's for kids. <laughs> see, it's for kids, but it's well, built. Well, see, that's the problem. 
I like the dude okay, but he did a he did a kids animated haunted house movie. He did City of Ember. Well, I mean, this is a this is a kids director. It's true, but I'm just they saying. Hand him a horror film? Come on! No, 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 no! I gotta, I gotta defend one thing. Monster House is built exactly like a horror film, and and yeah. so that's super cool. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, there was a little bit too much Monster House influence in this haunted house movie, and and I was a little bit disappointed. I was hoping he would kind of move past that. Well, I will. I will watch it with my children for you. Oh, I would. I would love that. I think you'll be <laughs> genuinely impressed. And note all of the, you know, all the tropes and conventions as they arise because they do, and it's super cool. Well, yeah, he he knows his house stuff, but um, <laughs> it's just as we've been saying. And and um, I had an exchange on Twitter with one of my new followers who is a fan of the show. Oh, uh, that. He he didn't mind this the remake because he he didn't notice that there were too many changes, uh, that there weren't there weren't a lot of departures from the original. And I politely disagreed with him because I think that's one of the key problems here is the things that were left out or the things that were um, dropped were not huge things, but they were things that to me were essential and crucial to the story. Hmm. Um. By the way, a little shout out there to Eric Cerna for mixing it up with me on Twitter. Yeah. Well, thanks, Eric, for jumping in on that. And, and Eric, see, I want to tell Eric, I think, Kyle, I get a sense maybe of where Eric is coming from because I do feel like they were trying to be respectful. I, I think that here's the thing. A lot of times a studio, and I don't know this, this is all speculation, but a lot of times a studio will say obnoxious things like, that thing needs to be 90 minutes, not a minute longer, right? And they'll put yeah. these restrictions on the filmmaker. And I wonder I wonder if they told him, hey, you need to bring this down. Let's keep it around 90 minutes. And, and so he had to cut a bunch of it. But otherwise, I feel like he was respectful to the original. Yeah, and I'm with you on that. But I think that if he had to make choices on what to adapt you know whether it's it's Kenan or whether it's Lindsay Abair, the screenwriter. If they they had to make choices of cutting stuff, the things that they cut demonstrate a fundamental misunderstanding of the initial narrative. Mm. So no bird funeral, no swimming pool, no dog. I mean, the dog is a is an essential character in the original. Yeah. No eating, no tree eating. <laughs> um no final act yeah yeah the the last uh, 20 minutes is egregious that they didn't have that yes and and i think that not having the dad be the guy who sells the houses it it emasculates the narrative the whole point is he, we talk about this in the first half of the show he's complicit but he doesn't know it so Steve Freeling has been selling houses to people that are built on graves. Right. And and he's in this house because the company he 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 helped build and, and sell subdivision, so he gets to live in the house. That's why they can't leave. It's 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 a free house. And so to shift that all over to oh, the dad is this guy who can't get a job for some reason. Eh. Yeah, it's not, you know it just it loses that connection, and I think that was so important. The 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 complete excision of the real estate developer character, who's played pretty great by James Karen in the original, Mister McTeague. Oh, yeah. uh, Mister Teague is gone. 
And so you just have like a dinner conversation that fills in all the gaps too early, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. It's a cemetery. Oh, didn't you know that? Ha 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, wait, that was supposed to be this huge reveal when they're standing up on the hillside and there's a giant cemetery behind them. Yes. And Steve is going, oh yeah, that's, that's close enough. The spirits should be happy with that. I mean, all that scene is gone. Uh, Mr. Teague and Steve standing horrified on the sidewalk as they watch the house implode. Gone. Yeah. Seriously. I, th- I think if you're going to cut material from the original that is not essential to the story, they made all the wrong choices. <laughs> Just going to put that right out there. Well, well I, I can't argue with that because I, I would tend to agree. Now, however... I do think that with the father character, which is of course played by Sam Rockwell in this, I like that he he still kind of has that frustrated masculinity about his character. Like agreed. Because the point where he goes on his dad's shopping spree anyway, even though yeah. they don't have the money to do that. Um yeah. <laughs> that that is uh, to me, I don't know, that, that really resonated with me because I'm like, this guy is ticked about what his life isn't, and he's just going to try to force his life to be what he thinks it should be. And um, do you think, speaking of the mother and father in this film, do you think that the fact that she was a writer and that he was trying to work a day job, basically, so she could be a writer, do you think that they had any kind of subtext in this film to suggest that um, because the mother wasn't a stay-at-home mother because she was, well, I guess technically she was, but because she was trying to pursue a career that, that this had some kind of punishment effect on them or, or is that not in this at all? Uh, it's in there. It's definitely in there because uh, the, she has the lines where she can't get her book written because they have three kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they uncomfortably joke about having had too many Um, she doesn't model very good parental behavior and has to recant. Um, the, the Freelings in the original are not perfect parents, but they're much better parents Mm -hmm. than these, than these two. But while you were talking, you pointed something out to me, which I think is fascinating. What's that? The original poltergeist, Steve Freeling is a provider, good, hardworking guy, Gives him the house. He's putting in the swimming pool. The kids' rooms are full of toys, everything they could want. Yet in the end, he's powerless to save his family. This film, the dad fails at being a provider. Can't get have his his credit cards don't work. He can't get a job. He's he's trying to make up for his fa- failings by buying things that he's going to have to return the next day anyway. Yet he is directly involved in saving his family. Mm. So it's this odd inversion of the dad character, which I think with with some additional digging we could figure out makes sense. You've got a, a dad from the early 80s versus a dad from the todays. <laughs> very different treatment of the father figure and very different treatment of the mother figure, whereas um, Joe Beth Williams' character is a stay-at-home mom, as far as we know, by choice. So Diane is going to stay home. She's going to take care of the kids. That's her thing. Now we get the Amy character who is a reluctant stay-at-home mom, who wishes she had her career, who can't be successful because of the children. And and it's um, it's kind of a 
creative type of career, right? It's a it's a conjuring from within oneself, but because she conjured children, children. instead, yeah, exactly, <laughs> that used up her her juice, so to speak. But but this is a good segue into what I really want to talk about, and it's what we didn't really have enough time to talk about in the first half of the show. Um, the the mother figures are so dramatically different, and maybe it's because Diane is a good mother, a voluntary mother, a stay-at-home mother. She really becomes the film's champion. Mm-hmm. She's the protagonist. She's the hero. She rescues Carol Ann from the spirit world. She gets her kids out of the house safely. She's the one who believes. She's the one who can connect. Whereas in this version, in the new version, reluctant bad mom, stay-at-home writer, frustrated woman, she has almost no role in the film whatsoever. Uh, She doesn't connect with the spirit world. She doesn't go into the other world to save her daughter. Um, She isn't really crucial in rescuing the family at the end of the film. Um, If anything, she's just a fourth child for Eric to get out of the bedroom window. Yeah. So, so there is something very interesting going on here that, uh, because we we often forget that the horror films of the seventies and eighties are really pretty conservative. They punish transgressive behavior and they re- reward traditional behavior. So Diane, good stay-at-home mom, hero. Now we get this contemporary narrative, which is oh, kind of reluctant, crabby, bad mom, <laughs> useless, useless mother. But strangely enough, deadbeat, out of work, poor dad, chance to be a hero. Well, also, only billable star, Sam Rockwell. (laughs) That's true. And to his credit, he was great in it. Absolutely. I liked his character. I liked his sardonic nature. I liked his, his... delivery. Yes. But there's there's definitely a different attitude about gender in this film, uh, which I think is actually regressive. Uh, the original Poltergeist to me is extremely feminist. It's very progressive. Um, it's very much up with women. And we, we mentioned that, right? So mm-hmm. the, the three most powerful characters in the original are all women. Yes. So you have the mom who saves the kids. You have the college professor who lays the groundwork, and then you have the medium who is a woman. Well, they essentially changed two of those three characters to men in the remake. Mm-hmm. Um, the dad and the son become the savior figures, and the medium is a man, yes. uh, Jared Harris, who I love. I love Jared Harris. I think he did a great job as Kerrigan. What a great character name. Kerrigan Burke. <laughs> right, but... But still, I mean, no Zelda Rubenstein, right? I mean... No, 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 no. And you lose the whole maternal connection with the other world and and the sense of the the spirit children and that kind of, And this is more of a... God, he reminded me of the that the awful re, reimagining of Van Helsing. Oh. <laughs> where, you know, he's all scarred up and he's got all these gadgets and all these tools. But I about laughed out loud because... Burke shows up with his little medicine bag of all his stuff that he's going to use to exercise the spirits. And the only thing it is in it is the rope. <laughs> is that what he normally takes to houses? I have my rope. <laughs> I have a bag full of rope. That's funny. That didn't occur to me, but that is hilarious. Oh, now when that he you opened it. that bag, I about lost it. Cause it's like, how would he know that they were going to need a rope and where the heck are his other tools and equipment? I mean, it was so, 
ludicrous where you're like, you can imagine the production design. Well, he needs to have a rope. <laughs> right. Uh, well, let's put it in this bag. I mean, it was, <laughs> oh, it, there were, I had a lot of problems with that. I liked all the stuff with the scars, but. Yes. And uh, Dr. Shock talked about this. Some of the most powerful moments from the original are when uh, the paranormal expert, Dr. Lesh, is talking in those hushed, whispered tones to the family. Yeah. Brilliant stuff. And then perhaps the most powerful things from the beginning of the original is one Tangina is explaining where Carol Annie is and what's going on with the spirits and, and let's go get your daughter. All that's gone. Instead, now we have, ah, this is my leg. Do you want to see my scar? Ho, ho. Right. Hey, we used to be married. Ah, and you don't, you couldn't handle me, right, honey? Hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Comic relief. Yeah. Lame. Yeah, I, I think they were, if I had to speculate, it seems like they knew they didn't have Zelda, right? Or somebody who's that, because she's awfully flamboyant in the first film. Absolutely. And I think they needed to... I think they just tried to amp up that character to be loud in order to try I, to fill the space. I agree. But the problem is they amp him up in a masculine way. Mm-hmm. Whereas the key to the original character was her femininity, her diminutive femininity, but nonetheless, it was a very powerful thing. And all that, that bonding of the women and all the women talking about motherhood and the women talking about women. Cause you know, the first one passes the, uh, the Bechdel test by a mile. Yeah. Um, there's tons of women talking about stuff other than men in the original. <laughs> right. This one, not so much. It's it's really thin, and the women characters end up being really pretty passive, especially by the end. I really liked Jane Addams and her portrayal of Dr. Powell. I thought she was quirky. I thought she was disheveled. You could kind of imagine her uh, being the person who's always made fun of at the faculty meeting. Oh, yes. And I thought her delivery was really, really great. But once... Burke shows up, she's the ex-wife, and that's it. Yep. Now she's just the the comic relief. She's the banter partner. And, you know, the outro reduces her to that. Oh, I can't do my lines correctly. Huh. Yeah. I have a PhD, but I don't know where my mark is. Yeah. I re- uh, she's I- <laughs> com- completely been reduced to this two-dimensional sidekick, which is what happened to Amy, who starts the film as a pretty strong character and by the end she's just there yeah yeah i mean i wish they would have uh, just excised and just cut out that mid credits stinger altogether because that's it's not very effective well they did all. it to prove burke had survived and little comedy but see and we didn't get a chance to talk about this the the rope the rope is an umbilical cord the mother has to go in back into the other side to get the child so the mother and child can be reborn through the ceiling and land on the floor. Nice. Um, the, the way the original poltergeist depicts that, it's a rebirth. They're covered in afterbirth. Yeah. They have to go into the tub. They have to, you know, it's, it's very much coded in maternal terms. It's very feminist. It's very much about, I gave birth to Carol Ann once. I'm the one to give birth to her again. All of that's gone when you let the brother go save her. Yeah, it totally is. And then it just becomes this weird sibling thing. And that if you overread it Freudianly, it's really <laughs> super creepy <laughs> that the, the, the son is going to go back in the womb to 
reborn again with his sister, who's now his twin. I have no idea what's going on. I love that adverb, Freudingly. (laughs) Freudingly. That was amazing. So, okay, well, let's talk about this brother here real quick. So his name, we talk about what's in a name. His name is Griffin, which is an animal that's half eagle, half lion. Right. Now, Now, did it mean anything to you that, you know, he had this kind of redemptive arc, almost where... He was super afraid because in the beginning we get a backstory that the mother had lost him at a mall for like three hours and he's skittish and so forth. And then at one point he actually abandons his sister and then he feels responsible. So he does this heroic thing in this part of the movie. And, you know, I... That's something that I could have seen Spielberg doing, you know, making the the big brother the hero. But um, I agree with you that... You know, by taking out those feminine aspects, it's just not as powerful. No, it changes the narrative. And you can tell about 15 minutes into the remake that they're making the this, the boy, they're making Griffin the main character. Because mm-hmm. we see him see things. He notices things no one else notices. He finds stuff out and nobody believes him. He's the one who has to make the choices and make the decisions. And that's fine to a certain extent. Um, but then by the climax, it's, it's stripped away. But after, I, after he saves his sister, he's relegated to supporting cast again. So who's the hero? Is this Griffin's narrative or is it, is it Eric's narrative? Yeah, it's, it's I don't great. think the film knows. And whereas the original, it is always Diane's narrative. Yeah. Always. Well, with the Griffin character, the reason I thought he was somewhat interesting was because he became that voice of warning character like we got in 1950s sci-fi horror where he is trying to raise the warning voice and no one's taking him seriously or even right. listening to him at all. And yeah. so I'm like, well, this is this is familiar. and But, but as you said, yeah, he just kind of... The character was interesting. Kyle Catlett, a great child actor. I think he was really believable. Um, I think he handled the role really well. Um, I think we were, as an audience, were concerned about his safety, mm-hmm. at least initially. Um, but but it's not a mother protecting her daughter, and that's to me is so essential to the narrative, and so much of what. I think Spielberg was trying to realize with his story. <clears throat> yeah. Cause here's some weird, here's just some weird thing I noticed. Okay. If you go to internet movie database and you type in poltergeist. Okay. And you know, when you put in a movie, it'll tell you the date and it'll tell you the two of the main actors. Mm-hmm. Poltergeist 2015, Sam Rockwell, Jared Harris. Poltergeist 1982, Joe Beth Williams, Heather O'Rourke. <laughs> Internet Movie Database gets it. The remake is about the two dudes and how the two dudes are going to save this family. The original film is about a mother and a daughter and about how the mother is going to save her daughter from a menacing male figure. That is a great little observation. And and so I, I think that's a fundamental flaw in the film. And that's why I think if, if we're going to hold up a, a remake to any kind of standard, and apparently we don't, but if you and I were uh, to hold this up to a standard, I think the remake would have to would have to deliver on some levels. And when I when I teach adaptation studies, 
<clears throat> I don't teach that an adaptation needs to be identical to the source. I mean, that's ludicrous. Uh, you don't want to go see a movie that's a shot-for-shot shot realization of a book. You want something new. You want something different. Mm-hmm. But a lot of theorists talk about the idea of essence. That you have, If you're going to call something an adaptation, you need to find the essence of the narrative and repackage that essence for a new medium, a new genre, a new audience, a new generation, whatever that is. I think this remake does the exact opposite. I think they remade everything but the essence. <laughs> the major story, the plot, the character, whatever. But the essence, the thing that makes the original movie so important and so culturally relevant and so interesting is completely ripped out, stripped away, thrown away. And that makes me worry. I know you shouldn't say things like worry when you're doing film analysis. <laughs> no, say it, say it. I, but I think Gil Kennan and David Lindsay Abair had no clue what the original movie was about. <laughs> yeah, you know, you said that a little bit ago, and I think you hit it right on the head. Uh, as I talk with you more here, Kyle, I think you're exactly right. I think that that a lot of these themes they just missed. And so they remade the film on a very surfacey level. And like like I said, it has a lot of similar story beats where it follows kind of the checklist. Not the whole checklist, unfortunately, but but yeah, the the heart of the the story is not there. Right. And that that's what to me was ultimately disappointing is because, because um, you know, so many horror narratives are feminist narratives. Um, Carol Clover famously kind of talks about this with The Final Girl. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the things that made the horror films of the 70s really pretty progressive, the idea that the hero was almost always a woman. And it was usually a, a, a traditional good girl who was not into drugs or sex or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Jo Beth Williams, Diane, is that final girl even though it's a it's a family narrative. And I mentioned this in the first half. This is what fascinates me. She's it. the final girl grown up. I love it. Amy is not. No. There's no there's no sense of final girl to her. Mm-mm. Uh there's no sense of that horror legacy from the 70s that Spielberg and Hooper were building on. Um it's it's just a much more traditional let the guy save the day, put the women in peril you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so by updating, quote unquote, updating the film for a modern audience, they actually took the narrative as far as, as a gender perspective goes, and they sent it back 30 years instead of forward 30 years. <laughs> yeah. It's almost as if honestly, and I don't think this is a stretch to say this, you could have eliminated that mother character altogether in the way this film is built. You wouldn't have even noticed it really. So if, if Eric had been a single dad mm-hmm. who couldn't get a job because he had to take care of his kids, film still works. Yep. Same film. Yeah. So- uh, she, <laughs> she lifts right out. And that, to me, is the tragedy of the remake. So for people out there who missed it, and I'm sure you haven't because we've been belaboring the point, <laughs> the main character of the 1982 film is removed in this remake, she's not even in it, really, for all intents and purposes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. My. And so now the misogynists who hate Fury Road can now hate me uh, for my feminist agenda. But I think that that's what's going on here, man. And I think that's what kills it. 
I don't hate Fury Road because of the feminism, but I was displeased with it, Kyle, because of the lack of story in it. And no, it was, there's there's no story in Fury Road. Oh, thank you for saying. Everybody out there, Kyle Bishop just said there is no story in Fury Road. But I Road. will say thank you. it doesn't it doesn't need one. <laughs> I always need story, Kyle. I really oh, do. There's it's all well, that's another that's another discussion. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is. What about but, Go ahead, please. Well, it's just, I watched the two in the same week. So I watched Fury Road and then I watched this. And you see Fury Road, which is taking a, it's it's not a remake. It's kind of a sequel. It's part of a, a frame, a, a larger framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, but something that started out as such a hyper-masculine narrative and now in the 21st century is showing that masculinity isn't exclusive to men, um, that you can have a feminist violence, you can have a feminist action film. It's challenging all our conventions of gender and genre, and it's turning Max into a, a, a symbiotic character with a woman instead of a dominating character. <laughs> it's feminizing Max my, uh, to an extent that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. My my friend Carl over on Movie Podcast Weekly said it should have been called Mad Maxine. Yeah. (laughs) But see, that's looking forward. That's taking this to the next level. That's recognizing that, hey, women like to see car chases and things blow up, uh, but there's maybe a little different sensibility. So let's explore that. You contrast that to this film, which is no, 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 (laughs) no. (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Let's get back to basics here, man. The, 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 the psychic has to be a dude. The dad has to save the family. The brother is the one who's going to save his little girl. The men, it's all about the men folk. And, and then the, well, this is a little bit of a switch. The menace of the original film is also quoted as feminine, which is fascinating. And, and I don't think enough people pay attention to that. As a Freudian uh, critic, because I am, I'm often looking for phallic symbols, and I'm trying to see how uh, you get this symbolic representation of power in terms of the phallus. Uh, the most frightening image from the original Poltergeist is when the the final transformation of the closet, which essentially turns into a giant vagina. And it tries to reabsorb the children through this kind of odd re- inverse birth scene, which is terrifying and it, and it goes into the middle ages with the vagina dentata and the fear of the vagina and a misunderstanding of how women's anatomy works so you've got a movie in poltergeist 1982 which is a woman fighting a feminine monster although it's in fact a man and that's fascinating the idea of, of pitching the, <laughs> the feminine against the feminine you have the final girl versus the monstrous feminine Tell you, man, this paper is writing itself. I, uh, it sure is. And in the and in the remake, nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing's there. Yeah. Snooze, snoozer. I, I back you on that. And yeah, I mean, and and this is, I I love the level that you're discussing this on, and it's um, admittedly, it's a little bit hard for me to maintain that level with you, but I will say, on a a lower level <laughs> here is Kyle. Honestly, there is just repetition in this. Like the shots of the other side of the world, you know, the other side, the other spirit world. Um, it's just, it's very repetitive that way. And it, it feels like, because when I rewatched the 1982 version, there are so many little um, interesting things to look at. 
and, and fascinating aspects that, um, you know, it really keeps you engaged. And in this one, it's kind of the same thing over and over. And it's just, there's not a whole lot to it. I, it's just not nearly as imaginative. No, it's not. And that's, that's disappointing. So I got three questions I want to ask you kind of in a vacuum, and I'll try to ask them as straight as I can so you don't have any idea what I'm trying to suggest or where I'm going with it. <laughs> okay. You shoot. All right, here Go it goes. For it. So in the 1982 version, we had an instance of a scene where um, it's a, a neat little moment where the camera pans to the right and then it pans back to the left and you have all the chairs stacked up in this intricate yes. way. Brilliant scene. It is brilliant. And it's neat because IMDb, and I probably mentioned this last week, they said that they had already had that structure put together, the way they pulled that off. And then they had people come in and hurry up and swipe those chairs, the loose individual chairs, and then just set the structure on top of the table. And they had to do it really fast while the camera was panning. Cool yeah, stuff. no, it, it's it's a it's an uninterrupted shot. It's all practical effects, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. But in this film, the version of that we get is um, a really intricate. It, it almost looks like one of those um, card buildings that you make with playing cards, but it's with oh, stacked yeah. comic books. The comic books, yeah. And so, do you think? I, well, why do you think? <laughs> I'll just ask you, why do you think that they switched that up and went with um, comic books from chairs? Uh, well, part is is within our current conversation. The chairs frighten the mom. The comic books frighten the, the brother. Hmm. So again, it's it's the, the, the sinister playfulness of the spirits attacking the person who will ultimately be the hero of the film. So I, I think there's a little bit of foreshadowing. I think it's bringing that the main character to the fore, to drawing your attention to it. And then it's just, it's operating within their spheres. So the, the mom, Diane, is always trying to get him to put, push the chairs in and push the chairs away. You know, it's in the kitchen, dining area, it's in her sphere. Whereas in the remake, it's, um, it's Griffin's comic books. They're his property. They're his world. Um, so, wow. so it's, it's interesting how they adapt it. So some of the visual referent is still there, you know, the stacked up things. Yes. Uh, but they're tailored to the characters who are engaged with them. So <laughs> good job on the remake. I think that's an effective adaptation. I'm glad I asked you for your answer first before giving mine, because <laughs> here's is like a hundred times better. My, uh, theory on that Kyle was that. All they just wanted to show off was CGI. So, <laughs> you know, because it is not practically done from what I could tell. It no, just no, looks no. like it's CGI thrown comic books everywhere. But yeah. And well, you're right, too. Uh, it's it's they go for the cheap. It's the it's the problem. But when you compare Lord of the Rings to the Hobbit movies. Yeah. It's like we're not going to bother to put a realistic latex mask on somebody. We're just going to use a computer now. Yeah. And Boo. Lamentable. Okay, what about this? How did you feel about the title of the film showing up in the grass? Uh, I loved it. Um, I love that kind of stuff. I love it when they creatively display the credit sequence into the film. I recently taught uh, the Walter Mitty remake, mm-hmm. which does that quite cleverly. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Um, God, there's another recent film that does it where all the words kind of appear as part of the architecture. <laughs> um, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> Napoleon Dynamite does it with the food. Right. I just think I think title sequences can be done very effectively, very creatively, and they can contribute to the story. Um, I liked this one because all we got was the title. And the title was kind of ghostly. It was, is it there? Is it not there? Oh my gosh, I didn't notice it. There it is. Yeah. It's how long has it been there? Right. Um, so it is kind of playing around with that idea of what do you see? What do you perceive? Um, and, and, but, but see that we were talking about the speakers being an, an, an unplumbed plot point by drawing your attention to the field behind the house with the, with the word poltergeist with them saying, Oh, what's with the field behind the house? Oh, that belongs to the city. Nothing happened in the field. Uh, yes. <laughs> they kept drawing our attention to the fact that their backyard is this giant public field with these power lines going through it. And it's not even part of the film. No, it's not. So disappointing. I totally agree. Okay, here's another one for you because you're batting a thousand here. <laughs> okay. So Madison, the little Maddie, six-year-old, the Carol Ann equivalent. She has a stuffed animal. It, it appears to be her favorite oh, yeah. toy. It's a pig corn. Like, like a unicorn, but it's like a pig with a horn on the middle of its head. What do you, what's the significance of a pig corn? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's a really good question. Okay. I I think it's the impossible made possible. But I think what it really is is the production designer was like cool. <laughs> Right. You know, at a store, we got to get a stuffed animal for the kid. Hey, this pig has a horn on it. Yeah. Um, I do think that the pig rolling around on the floor and then sitting up and looking at her was all pretty fantastic. Yeah. And frankly, I was expecting at the end of the film when they're kind of driving off and they close up on the pig corn for the pig to like wink or something. Oh, man. Which it didn't, but I was prepared. Um, I don't have any comments on the pig corn, but... I do think it's interesting because in the original film, Carol Ann's go-to toy was a headless doll. <laughs> oh. And to me, that was just, that to me was Hooper, not Spielberg, and maybe I'm wrong. But the idea that she had this doll that the head kept coming off was so much more interesting to me than the Pigacorn. Yeah. But Pigacorn, extremely interesting. Yes, it is. I, I have to. Uh, but I cannot agree. explain the pig corn to you. <laughs> okay, I can't. I don't really have a theory on it either, though. I swing and a miss. Okay, what about this one? Um, okay, so in this film, and this is this could be strictly production design, but in this film we get the tree visual from the skylight uh, in the roof. So, um, were they? Well, let me just ask you, what, what do you think they were going with that? So it wasn't just out his bedroom window. He's in this attic-like room, bedroom, and there's a skylight, and then he sees the tree through that window. Yeah, well, first off, they broke the kids up, which I think was a huge error. Uh, they don't have the kids in the same room, so the kids are not jointly menaced by the closet. You lose that initial bond. <clears throat> but I, but I think they are playing with the idea of the scary attic, you know, making the poor kid. And I mean, how bad are these parents? Let's put the kid with a fear complex up in the attic. <laughs> We've got two perfectly good bedrooms on the second floor. Let's not put the older daughter up in the attic who would prefer the privacy. <laughs> right. Let's put the scared kid up there. Right. Yeah, that was I mean, pretty dumb. 
I told you they're terrible parents. Yeah, they aren't very good. Um, well, no, I I think the skylight just it was it was easier to shoot it. The kid could lie in bed and look up at it. It was like looming over him. I mean, there's a lot of production value stuff. Yeah, with, that we get from the skylight. That's what I thought. It was because it would be directly over him, looming ominously, right? Yeah. So. And my house is full of skylights. I have about ten skylights. But there are no skylights in the bedrooms because you cannot sleep if there is a skylight directly over your bed because then it is light in your bedroom. <laughs> and so the whole idea of sleeping in a skylit room is ludicrous to begin with. And as I said, they would never have put the kid up there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when but you, you do get you do get this weird image and this is crazy. But it's like the tree is going into the cookie jar <laughs> yes. to, to get poor Griffin uh, as it reaches all the way through the house to grab him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's production design. It's not realistic. It's not uh, It's not supposed to make sense. I think it's just so they could have those shots of it like slapping against the, seal, the roof. I got you. Well, what you said a moment ago, referring to the 1982 version... That the children in the same room were jointly menaced. But actually, one of the things that I noticed, Kyle, upon revisiting it um, the second time of this past week <laughs> was that Carol Ann never seems to be afraid of the clown business and all the clowning around that goes on with that boy's toy. No. She never seems to notice. And uh, it's like, it's kind of weird because. I, I don't know. I, I just, I wonder about that. I, when I watch the film, I'm like, well, how come she isn't picking up on this kid's anxiety? Well, in the, in the final act, she's concerned about the closet. <laughs> so right. her attention is focused on the closet because she doesn't want to get sucked back into it. So she doesn't care that her brother's fighting the clown next door. <laughs> just but also, she, yeah, he's just, thank you for that. <laughs> she is not frightened in the way he is. Throughout the film, uh, she's never as frightened as he is. And that is something they maintained in the remake, uh, that she's kind of fearless as she's talking to the ghost people and her imaginary friends and the television. Um, she's not freaked out by it. He is because he's old enough to have that kind of an imagination. And she's still pure and innocent, which is why the spirits want her. Mm. So it, that, that doesn't bother me at all. And in fact, I think it makes perfect sense. Okay. Well, but I will say as far as the kids go, and I kind of mentioned this already, I was very pleased that they gave Kendra such an expanded role. Um, cause the older daughter really is kind of vapid in the original. Yeah. Uh, you kind of wonder why we have a third child. Yeah. Okay. Uh, whereas Kendra is, is pretty central to the narrative and has some pretty good moments. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I, I did agree. like that. I think she was a, a more pivotal character than the mom. Yes. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, too. So when we were talking about it being shorter, uh, I read in the Internet Movie Database trivia for this new 2015 film, it says the original cut of this film ran for 101 minutes with seven to eight minutes of footage missing from the theatrical cut. This mm. footage will supposedly be released as a director's cut on the DVD and Blu-ray. So I think what we said was exactly right, Kyle. The studio is like 90 minutes. <laughs> I think that's what they did. I really but do. 
but I can't imagine what was cut because you it couldn't be one giant scene unless there was a, unless there was an alternate ending, and it's not really talking in terms of alternate ending. Mm-mm. But my concern is, does this mean we have to watch it again? Are we going to have to watch this thing? Well, if you want to see that. Yeah, probably. I mean, probably. But this is an interesting note. And, you know, people who are familiar with the the life of a film critic (laughs) will, will know this. This is usually an ominous sign when a film is not screened in advance for critics. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. That's usually indicative of a major problem. I mean, the only time that they'll do that when it's not a major super huge problem like with the film sucking and they don't want word to get out that the film sucks is that if there's like super neck breaking twist you know that they don't want to be revealed then they won't screen it but um you know it seems that maybe they didn't have a lot of faith in this i don't know yeah uh that's usually what it means is uh, we want people to go before they read a bad review. Right. Now, and here's my final question before we get into the ratings and so forth, Kyle. Um, The original film, reported earlier in this episode, it made $76 in the U.S. But this remake here, and by the way, let's note that it is the summer blockbuster season right now. I mean, even though it's May... May has become a summer month for the cinema. Yeah. It says it says that the Poltergeist remake clocked in at like 27.7 million. Yeah. So, so it's significantly lower and it was Memorial Day weekend. It was a 4-day time frame. It was 3D which means more revenue. Yeah, potential yeah, exactly. Um and so I mean this is I mean, I know that horror films are lower budget. They um, end up making their money back a lot. It's, you know, usually they do, especially on video. But it's just really surprising to me because this is, I mean, we're talking like a difference of about $49 million between the two. So why do you think, and this even had um, a semi-bankable star. I mean, Sam Rockwell has some some fans now i mean why why do you think there's such a huge disparity in those two box office takes <laughs> all right uh this is perfect because i will direct you to my opening statement okay unnecessary <laughs> people recognize that it's an unnecessary film also there are some amazing movies out right now that people are far more interested in um you know pitch perfect 2 blew this thing out of the water uh, but I, I tweeted very snarkily after I got home from the movie. I said, hey, I just saw this really great movie called Poltergeist. It was totally cool. It's 30 years old, but you should still go watch it. <laughs> Fans of, of this type of film or this film in particular know what the film is. And if you want to watch the film, go watch the film. It's also not a great time of year for horror films. Um, and I also think we may have a little bit of horror saturation right now. Now, see, I, uh, I don't I don't know if that's true. Tell me why you think that. We're getting a lot of, you know, paranormal activities, haunted houses, narratives. I think I think people are, are hungry for original scripts and original films. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a remake was not really a huge prospect to a lot of people. 
so the fans, the people who love the original are going to be less interested in the remake. The people who think the original is a soft sold horror film are not going to be interested in the remake. So, so you've kind of got the people who love the original and the people who hated the original are not people who want to see a remake. <laughs> right. You're really going to get the people in between who probably know nothing about the original and who just kind of enjoy a, a good haunted house horror film and who aren't going to see Fury Road again. <laughs> well, I will agree with you that I think that the supernatural ghost movie type horror films, I mean, the ones where, you know, the the people, the characters have all black eyes, like black yeah. shiny eyes, or somebody's dragged around by their hair. I know the listeners get sick of me harping on that, but <laughs> I mean, I am really sick of those movies, but... Just a little context, though. I mean, yes, October is the most popular time of year to release a horror film, for sure, for Halloween. But um, The Conjuring, just, you know, that that just was, what, 2013? It was released yeah. in July. That raked in on its opening weekend. It was like $41.8 million. Right. And so, what's the key difference between The Conjuring and this film? That this was more, uh, The Conjuring was um, an original type of story. Versus exactly. a remake. Exactly. It, but, and now, isn't it ironic, though, Kyle, that the studios seem to think that if you have a bankable name, a title that people are going to recognize, that that's what's going to make them money as a sure bet. And so yep. <laughs> Kyle Bishop has a message for the studio. I, too, have a message for the studios. Huh, You're wrong, studios. <laughs> that's right. All right. You're often wrong. Well, let's um, wrap this up then with our final thoughts and ratings, and I'll, I'll go first and give yeah, you the last. Yeah, you better last, go first. Because, yeah, I want to give you the last word. <laughs> um, okay, number one, I think the listeners should know, if you have not seen the original from 1982, I think you should watch that one. Definitely. If you're only going to watch one Poltergeist movie, watch that one, because you know what? As far as I was counted, this has even fewer kills in it, fewer deaths there's not even a bird death in this. Nothing dies in this one. Nothing dies at all. <laughs> no one even gets hurt. <laughs> right. So, so it is a tame horror movie. And obviously, I mean, the 1982 version is the superior film. So if you've listened to all of these spoiler-filled conversations and, and you want to give one of them a try, definitely 1982. The other thing is, I don't really think this is scary. I, I, honestly, um, you mentioned the part where Kale, they do the Carol Ann with the weird eyes CGI. Right. That was the scariest moment for me. And and for me, it was kind of like that little cubby hole where the clown box is and the squirrels yeah. in there. I mean, I knew it was going to be a jump scare. It had to be a jump scare, but it still got me a little bit. But honestly, this film really isn't scary at all. And the longer this film runs, the less interesting it gets for me. Like, whereas the uh, the other Poltergeist, it starts out interesting and it gets more interesting. But this one just really tapers off. I do admire the fact that I felt like they tried to show respect to the original. But I think Kyle hit it exactly. I didn't even realize it, Kyle. So you get full credit. I just don't mm -hmm. think the filmmakers understood the first film and its themes. I really don't. But this would be a good type of film for like a family. Like if you want to take your kids that are 13 and up, I wouldn't take kids younger than that. 
Yeah. I mean, I think the PG-13 is pretty appropriate. Um, and I, for me, it's a, it's a 5.5 out of 10. I've definitely seen worse ghost movies that were more irritating. And, um, you know, so even though they missed the boat on a lot of things, I, I did enjoy myself somewhat in the theater. I really enjoyed Sam Rockwell. And so I say, I call it a 5.5. I say rent the new poltergeist only if you've seen the original first Kyle Bishop. What do you say? Uh, I agree with most of what you just said there. Um, I think it is not a bad low scare horror film for a younger audience. I don't think it's poorly made. Um, Oh, I forgot one of my biggest peeves is the score Mm -hmm. is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) The, the score does nothing for the film. And I think the original score for the original film is brilliant. Mm. Um, I think the music is as much a part of the mood and this, the fear and the terror as, as anything. So I don't think you're going to get a super sophisticated film, even if it were a standalone, even if it weren't a remake, I think it's a little predictable. I think the jump scares are exactly where you think they're going to be, but then it, but then it refuses to deliver. So, uh, one of the scary moments is when the guy gets his arm caught in the wall Mm-hmm. And the drill is coming closer and closer. The guy's completely unharmed. Eh? Yes. <laughs> so it is very much a family-friendly haunted house story uh, in which no one is hurt or menaced in any real way. Or mangled. <laughs> or mangled or injured or psychologically <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it has some merit. I think Sam Rockwell is good. I think the child actors are quite effective. Um, so I think there is some stuff going on, but the original, like I say with you, if you're going to see a poltergeist film, go get the original. It the, the effects hold up. They're mostly practical. Uh, the acting is a top of the line. Joe Beth Williams is amazing and strong and sexy and funny. And she's everything this film needs her to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, Craig T. Nelson is great. Uh, I think it's one of his greatest roles ever. Um, so yeah, you definitely want to see the original, but I'm not going to completely pan this. I am going to give it a four, uh, <laughs> cause I think it has some curiosity value. I think if, uh, if it's on Netflix streaming and you've got your kids and you're all kind of bored, you can turn this thing on and enjoy it for what it is. But, um, I don't know where it is. A four is close to avoid it. I can't remember where that lies on the scale. Wherever you want it. So I would say if you are a fan of the original or a fan of horror films, avoid it. Um, If you like the lighter scares and want to bring your family into your horror habit, rent it. (laughs) Okay. Rental. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Now in a minute, Dr. Walking Dead here is going to give you an exciting sneak preview of next Friday's episode of Horror Movie Podcast. But before we get to that, I have three very important announcements for you. Number one, last chance. In the show notes for episode 55 here, I've included a link to a blog page where you can make sure that your city or country is going to be included on the back of the forthcoming Horror Movie Podcast t-shirts going to be like a concert type shirt where it shows where our listeners are from so go to horrormoviepodcast.com and in the show notes for this poltergeist episode which is episode 55 you can click on the link 
and go to the blog article to make sure that your city is included. Just leave us a comment in the show notes there in order to have your city added if it's not there yet. Last chance. Number two, if you are a true horror fan, and I know you all are, and if you're dead serious about horror movies, then on June 1st, which is this upcoming Monday, mark your calendars, I want you to go to my friend Bill Shetty's website, horrorontheGo.com. You all remember Bill Shetty, right? That's right. At horrorontheGo.com on June 1st, Bill Shetty has an episode coming out that's basically a concept discussion. I think it's only like 30 minutes but 30 minutes well spent of your time where he debates the horror genre blending phenomenon and the best way to classify a horror film into its genre and subgenres. Now, Bill Shetty is the host of that show, and for a special guest, he has yours truly, Jay of the Dead, and we battle a little bit. It's a good time. I think you'll really enjoy it if you care about horror, and I know you do. I think that you'll be interested in the discussion, and I also think that you'll want to weigh in. And so to that end, I'm asking you horror fans to do two things here. Number one, listen to that episode that's coming out on June 1st at horrorontheGo.com. Number two, give Bill Shetty some feedback on your thoughts and opinions about our debate topic Now, I don't care whose side you take. Probably most of you will side with Bill Shetty. I'm kind of used to that. But I just want my fellow horror fans to get involved and to get passionate about this topic because I do think it's significant. I think it's important. And I think we need to be more proactive in trying to influence the filmmaking and the genre. So what I want you to do, and I'll tell you what's in it for you in just a second, I want you to flood Bill Shetty with feedback from this horror movie podcast community. (laughs) I'm serious. Flood him with feedback. He doesn't know yet that I'm asking you to do this, so it'll be particularly funny. But I will ask him to go ahead and choose three people from those who gave feedback, and three lucky winners will receive one free horror movie podcast t-shirt for each of the three winners, okay? So go to horrorontheGo.com on Monday, June 1st. Listen to the episode where I'm a guest and then flood Bill Shetty with your feedback and give us your thoughts on what you think about that debate and how you think the reality of the situation is, how it needs to be, and uh, how we should go forward as a horror community at large. Seriously. Finally, one more thing, and then we will hear Kyle's incredible episode idea that he came up with for next Friday, June 5th. If you love horror movie podcasts, and if you also appreciate the sci-fi genre, then do me a favor and go check out our friends Matroid, Kill Bill Kill, Station, and Space Wolf Josh over there at the Sci-Fi Podcast. You can find it at thescifipodcast.com. It is a masterful movie podcast with great content. I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because I want people to quote me on this and I want to get the credit. Metroid's The Sci-Fi Podcast is the soylent green of science fiction podcasts. 
And in case you don't get that reference, people always love the taste of Soylent Green wafers the best. So the Soylent Green of science fiction podcasts, don't miss it. Very good. So uh, we hope that people are satisfied with our reviews of the Poltergeist films. And that's just the original 1982 in this remake. Let us know what you think in the comment boards. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we're always interested in that, in fact. And then you can even hit Kyle up on Twitter at Dr. Walking Dead. That's Dr. Walking Dead. And I'm sure you'd love to hear from him on Twitter, right, Kyle? I, I, I love to have uh, stimulating engagements with people on Twitter. And I, I not everybody is willing to engage in those, but I am very approachable. And uh, I like to, I, I'm not mean. I don't troll. I just like to engage in some conversation. Mm-hmm. And you all are welcome to disagree with me. If anything, it's more interesting if you do. Yes. Uh, then if you agree with me, then just smile and no, I'm always right. Right. But if but if you disagree with me, voice your opinion in the comments, or tweet my direction, uh, or you know send me a long rant-filled email if you feel so inclined. Yes. Now, as we wrap up episode 55 here of Horror Movie Podcast, I definitely want to thank my good friend Kyle for returning. Uh, he's a very busy man. I know lots of people who listen to this podcast are busy too. But Kyle is insanely busy, everybody, and it's super generous of him to take the time to talk with us on our humble little show here. Now, Kyle, you've got a big surprise planned uh, for the listeners for our next episode, so I wondered if you'd be kind enough to give them just a little preview of what's coming up next week. So as many of the listeners know, uh, my specialty is zombie narratives. Uh, And so next week we are going to be reviewing the Arnold Schwarzenegger film, Maggie, which is interesting to me because as we were talking on this show, big name star, relatively big budget, big, big idea, limited release kind of disappeared almost immediately. Yeah. It's already available on Amazon for instant viewing. So I I think that I'm not sure what to expect, but we are going to watch that. We are going to screen that. We're going to talk about it. And then I'm going to do a very special event just for your listeners, just for our (laughs) listeners, just for you out there in listening land. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a state of the zombie address. We're going to talk about where we're at with the zombie we are almost 15 years into the zombie renaissance. Where are we? Are we oversaturated? Are we bored? Are they still scary? What's going on? What's next for the zombie? Uh, and I will be doing that for free, uh, but I've done it. I've written it all down if, you want to, if anyone wants to buy my new book, which is coming out in the fall, but I will be giving a free preview on the next show. Oh, I'm super excited. I can't wait for that, honestly. So that's going to be episode 56 of Horror Movie Podcast. It comes out next week, which next Friday is June 5th. So do not miss that. It is a must listen, I can tell you right now. And Kyle, um, you also have a book that's already out and available, which I own. I wonder if you could just tell them about that real quick, where they could find that. Uh, I do have... uh a book that came out in 2010 it's called American Zombie Gothic The Rise and Fall and Rise of the Walking Dead in Popular Culture Um, it is a pretty comprehensive and and relatively theoretical overview of where the zombie came from and what it was doing in the 
20th century and into the very beginning of the 21st century. Uh, it is often used as a textbook, I'm proud to say, uh, for zombie-themed college courses hmm. because it does give a good overview of everything that was going on. It is a little theoretical because it was my PhD dissertation and I do use some obnoxiously large words. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's a I think it's an accessible read. And uh, I think if you want to learn a lot more about the cultural significance of zombie narratives, it is worth picking up. It has been recently reduced in price and is available on Amazon. Yes, and we will have that linked in the show notes for this episode. And I do have to say, genuinely, not just because you're my pal, I have that book. And in fact, I have another book, which is about sci-fi cinema, right? And it Uh is so... um, I mean, it's embarrassing to say this to my college (laughs) professor friend, but I mean, it is so thick and chunky and just unpleasant to get through. The reading is very unpleasant of the sci-fi book. But then you read Kyle's academic (laughs) book here and it's really enjoyable. I could totally follow it and everything. So I I think it's definitely worth your time. If, If you enjoy these episodes where we get super analytical and as Bill Shetty says, Kyle... He says we reviewed the hell out of horror movies. (laughs) If you enjoy reviewing the hell out of horror movies, then you definitely want to check out Kyle's book. It'll be linked in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you. Kyle, one more thing before we uh, wrap up here. The final artistic designs are being approved for the Horror Movie Podcast (laughs) t-shirt. And, oh, fantastic. And, and there are actually two shirts. They're both very similar, but I'm just saying um, pretty cool. Very proud of it. I really like this um, designer. He's done a great job. And I just want to know, Kyle, um, what size shirt do you wear? Because I'll be sending you I'm an, shirts. I'm an optimistic extra large. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, uh, you got it then. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say XL and... and uh, I'll, I'll keep myself in shape over the summer till I get it. <laughs> okay. Well, you'll be happy to know that most of our listenership has ordered extra largest. So, I mean, that's where we are. We're just horror fans. We're just, you know, that's what well, we, we, we don't have a ton of smalls and mediums for all our young, <laughs> young listeners out there. No, no, we're, we're just <laughs> extra largest mainly, but we're proud of that. So that's good. I, amen. <laughs> All right. Well, we love your comments out there, listeners. So please get involved in the horror movie podcast community. If you haven't noticed yet at our website, we have a great group of people who listen to this, uh, not just nationwide, but worldwide. You'll see that on the back of the t-shirts. You can leave a comment in the show notes for any episode, especially episode 55 here, or you could email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 801-382-8789. And you can find all of our episodes, including our archives of the weekly horror movie podcast and Horror Metropolis at our website, horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free on iTunes and you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. And I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. I'll have it linked in the show notes for this episode. And I just want to make sure that you uh, check out my other co-hosts' sites and things that they're working on. Check out Wolfman Josh over at Movie Streamcast. 
is a tremendous short little movie review podcast there. They review all stuff that's streaming of all genres. It's usually like a 10 to 20 minute show. Definitely worth your time. Guaranteed. Check it out. You can follow Josh on Twitter at Icarus Arts and follow our friend Dr. Shock, the mad doctor at dvdinfatuation.com where he reviews a movie every single day uh, forever. That's what he's doing over there. He's hardcore. He also has a new Facebook page now, which we'll have linked in the show notes. And you can follow him on Twitter at dvdinfatuation. And I'd just love it if you check out my other movie show. It's called moviepodcastweekly.com. And we review new movies of all genres that are currently in theaters. And I think that's it for episode 55. So we thank you for listening and join us again next Friday for Kyle Bishop's State of the Zombie Address and for our in-depth feature review of Maggie on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror Movie Podcast.